0: Ada. It's the only family that I could rely on. It was Ada who was there at Oscar's birth. We buried our parents together. She's my only true friend.
1: We both love Ada, that is clear.
0: Then stop being so selfish.
1: I'm not the selfish one here, and the fact is you have a choice. Would you like to be a part of our life, or not? Because I am not going anywhere.
0: Marriage takes priority.
1: God's command is clear, therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Have you nothing more to say?
0: Not if you've given God the last word.
2: Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline.
3: And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode five of season two of the Gilded Age, Close Enough to Touch. It was co-written by Lord Julian Fellows, series creator and executive producer Sonia Warfield. Michael Engler was back to direct once again.
2: Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us over on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. Very excited about this episode, Mike.
3: Yes, this was a great (laughs) episode. This was a great episode. I mean, there were a couple of road bumps, especially in the Peggy section. But even within the Peggy section, this episode was really highlighted by the ideas of happiness, faith, and being inspired. Those were three buzzwords that we heard throughout this episode. And even when something maybe was going wrong, much like Marion tells Ada early in the episode, don't give up because your happiness is close enough to touch. There's the episode title. I feel like Marion gets a lot of the episode titles, but I like that idea that your happiness is close enough to touch. How many times in your life do you feel like I should just quit? It's never going to pan out my way and it would be easier for all involved if I just gave up.
2: Especially these days, I feel like, I feel like post-pandemic things are so much harder. It's harder to like get up speed again after we were all like down at like couch potato speed. Now it's like really hard to whirl back up to life speed. I think it's hard. It's very hard.
3: It's, <laughs> it's very hard to do any of the want things. To nap. <laughs> everything that used to come just so easily requires so much extra work now. It feels like
2: yeah, when you stop momentum, man, it is really hard. Speaking of momentum, this season we've talked about a ton about how quickly it's been going along. This episode for me, it was kind of like a highlights reel. Like it was a lot of action, a lot of stuff happened, and not very much sort of in between. Which I can see where some people might say like that was amazing we really got a lot to chew on and really move the story forward and other people who might feel like i didn't need it to go this fast I, I could have spent a lot more time at the duke dinner i could have spent a lot more time in alabama i could have spent a lot more time trying to just enjoy everything that was going on instead of just like bam 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 you know you got to give the writers credit for 100 percent keeping you wanting to know what's happening next because it was just going and going and going
3: so it's not like the episodes are short. They just they have so many storylines that I think we're all invested in and or at least want to see more of. So you're right. The dinner, it was calories with no taste, right? We, we went so fast through and they gave us all of the high points. We walk out of that dinner knowing everything that we're supposed to know out of it. But we didn't get to, like, wallow in it. And, and I'm mm-hmm. using wallow in, like, a good way. Like, I like the luxuriate. That's the word I'm looking for. Luxu- I want to luxuriate in those dinner parties. And on the opposite spectrum in Alabama, I want to feel that terror a little more. We were specifically saying last week that we needed to run across trouble in Alabama to hit home Dorothy's warnings to her daughter, to give credence to T. Thomas's... Concerns and anger that he's been percolating on since they were in New York before they even came down here. So we needed to see that trouble. And we got it, but I feel like we could have used even more to to drive it home. I listened to listen Go back and watch the men walking with the pitchforks when they're hiding in the barn in the end of their storyline. They're saying some foul things, and, and not that I want to see that, but sometimes you have to see these things in order to drive them home. It's too easy to just assume you know it without being forced to live it. And I want to be forced to live certain things if i'm if i want to luxuriate in newport i feel like i have to pay the price and and suffer in terror in alabama a little bit
2: let's jump in with ada because she is another situation where i feel like we talked a lot about the build-up but then the actual event was very quick very very quick
3: i'm gonna play a clip in a second from when Ada makes the announcement to Oscar and Marion and, and obviously Agnes. I'm not going to play the Ada part of it. Really, I'm playing the Agnes part of it because in classic Agnes fashion, this storyline really became about Agnes more than about Ada and Reverend Apostles. Who That's who I'm going to call him for now on because he was supposed to be Matthew and now he's Luke. I'm just going to call him Rev or Rev Apostle. She comes in and we get all the details. We don't get to see any of the wedding planning, but we know the curate is going to perform the service. They're going to come back for a modest breakfast wedding afterwards. All of the details are done. The, the dress is already being worked on. All of that is set. So all that there is for us to get and absorb is Agnes's reaction to the news, which Do we even need to know? Because Agnes is going to have the most predictable reaction of anyone. Of course, Agnes is acting the way she's acting in this episode. So let's go through it and let's talk about it. Uh, If nothing else, just to see how cruel Agnes can be really, can really be when she actually unleashes her claws. Who knew she's holding back so often with her barbs? But I think she really lets it fly here.
0: Miss Scott won't be the only one absent.
4: You're not coming to the wedding?
0: No. And just in case there is any misunderstanding, Oscar will not be there either.
1: Mama.
5: But I... I had hoped that Oscar would take me down the aisle.
1: I'd be honored.
0: My son will not participate in your tomfoolery.
1: Mama, this is harsh, even for you.
0: Well, I'll be your maid of honor. Will you indeed? You're very calm and collected. Did you know what Ada was going to say? Marion encouraged me to tell you. We hoped you'd be happy for me. Why, when you're making a terrible mistake? What do you know about marriage or the duties of a wife? You're a spinster, and you've always been a spinster.
4: Why must you be so unkind? You're right.
0: I have
5: a great deal to learn, which I'm looking forward to. Please
0: don't spoil it for me.
1: There's a cab outside for Mr. Oscar. Thank you.
0: What about you, Bannister? Did you know Miss Ada is engaged to marry the Reverend Mr. Forte? Oh. Congratulations, Miss Ada. Do not congratulate her. I'm sorry? Rescind your congratulations. Aunt Agnes, this is silly. Please do not tell me how to speak to my own butler!
1: My apologies, Miss Ada, but I must cancel my congratulations at Mrs. Van Ryan's request.
0: I quite understand, Bannister. I'm going up. My head feels like a beating drum.
2: You're a spinster, and you've always been a spinster. That was too harsh and too much. I mean, at this point, she's not even trying to to hide anything other than this is about myself and me being super selfish and me saying I don't want to be alone and and all this kind of like. She's not. This is no twist on the Reverend's not good enough for you. He's suspicious. He's a bad guy. He's done something wrong. Nothing. This is not that. This is what we talked about in the last episode. And I was like, I don't think think marriage is okay by Agnes to anyone anymore, like for me, I just feel like she is so afraid of being alone that this would be her response to anyone and I think her her words back me on that this time that it's like no, it wouldn't have mattered who it was it wouldn't have mattered how much money this person had, it wouldn't have mattered what was going on. Spinster is always a spinster as far as Agnes is concerned. Really harsh stuff.
3: It's funny you mention that because there is that very specific conversation between Dashiell and Marion, where Dashiell says, I am surprised to hear Agnes is against marriage. And Marion corrects him that it's not a marriage she's against. It's just Ada being married. And he says, oh, what a relief. And and Marion gives like a, huh. She's another one. Does she not get it?
2: (laughs) I kind of think she... I do think she gets it, but I don't think she wants it.
3: She has to feel the walls closing in on her. Let's stick with Agnes, because then this is where the table is set. And then the rest of the episode is really people speaking their truth and really standing up to Agnes for the first time ever in a really forceful way. We really have three clips here that spread throughout the entire episode. You're going to have Marion talking to her. And and appealing in two different ways, a familial way and then the public reception. Then you're going to have her conversation with Rev Apostle and then you're going to have Bannister shaming her. And I'm curious, I want to play these clips and then I want you to tell me which one do you think is the one that actually turns her. I'm not sure if one does the trick or if it's just all of them all together. But let's start with Marion's take.
4: Do you know what this is about? (laughs) You are many things, Aunt Agnes, but I'd never describe you as obtuse. Explain yourself. It's the way you spoke to Aunt Ada that keeps her in her room. She's finally found the man she wants to marry. Can't you just accept it?
0: You've not forgotten that you live here at my pleasure.
4: Do you really want to quarrel with your only surviving sibling?
0: This marriage would be a disgrace. What would our parents think, if I were to say nothing and let this happen.
4: So you try to please the dead by bullying the living? Oh. You might not care what I think or how Aunt Ada feels, but I'm certain you care what everyone else will say. And to the outside world, it will seem that you are petulant and angry because Ada is no longer at your beck and call.
3: What do we think? Smart for her to make that last appeal of maybe you don't care what I think or or you're even your own sister but the the public is going to see you as being an ass in this situation. Persuasive.
2: I think so, because Agnes absolutely cares about appearances and, you know, realizes that this is going to co- sort of air their dirty laundry by not showing up. It shows that there's some sort of division in the house, which I do not think she wants anybody to to be privy to. Um, as much as she is obviously voicing her opinion, at the same time, I think she wants the to, to look like the Van Ryan house is a united front always. I honestly think at the end of the day, it's it's Bannister's comments that actually get to her.
3: So I agree with you, Bannister's shaming is really the thing that tips her over. But let's listen to her be vulnerable in a real way with the reverend. Because, again, like Marion and like Bannister, he doesn't back down to her. And I think it's interesting finding someone, because the last time she stood up to one of Ada's suitors, that man ran away with his legs between his his tail between his legs. Here, she doesn't get that satisfaction.
0: You are aware that she has no money
1: to speak of. Mrs. Van Ryn, I love her. I never expected to fall in love at my age, but I had not then met Ada. Love seldom survives marriage. I'm sorry if that was your experience.
0: But why must you do it so quickly?
1: Am I to understand that you are against the plan?
0: How perceptive.
1: I don't intend to take her away from you.
0: Ada's with me every day and night. Are you saying that won't change?
1: There will be changes, Yes, but I mean to retire in New York. I will never ask her to leave the city.
0: Maybe not, but she will be gone from my house, leaving me alone. Because that is what I will be. Alone.
1: You have your son and your niece.
0: Children marry and go. Ada. It's the only family that I could rely on. It was Ada who was there at Oscar's birth. We buried our parents together. She's my only true friend.
1: We both love Ada. That is clear.
0: Then stop being so selfish.
1: I'm not the selfish one here. And the fact is, you have a choice. Would you like to be a part of our life? Or not? Because I am not going anywhere.
0: Marriage takes priority.
1: God's command is clear. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Have you nothing more to say?
0: Not if you've given God the last word.
2: I thought that was so awesome. <laughs> I loved it when I was like, well, what are you supposed to retort back to God? And then she's like, not if you've given God the last word. I was like, oh, word, lady. Like I feel the same way. What are you supposed to retort back to a reverend of your church when he quotes the Bible to you? I mean, I don't have any Bible slams back.
3: <laughs> We're in our 14th hour of this show, and I don't think i can remember agnes being vulnerable to this extent i mean her voice is straight quivering on the verge of tears in the middle talking about how uh, ada's been the only one we buried our parents together she was there for the birth of oscar she, um, you know the the kids will grow marry and leave and i will be alone what is it about the reverend that her arch nemesis really in this, in this fight, this is, this is her main rival, is it just because he's a reverend that she allows that wall to come down versus her normal steely self, do you think? Or is it she's just at her wit's end?
2: I think it's the wit's end slash like the tide has turned so far that she literally has nothing left but to, to like be like a chihuahua and just lay on her back and be like, look at my belly. Like, I, I'm I'm going to show you like all of my soft underside now because it's really her last play. She's already stomped her feet. She's already yelled. She's already criticized Ada. She already tried to shut down Oscar and Marion. She really has no plays left. And he didn't back down. He wasn't like, look, this is your family. I'm respectful. Ada and I are perfectly happy. We can just court, whatever you know, and and we'll be fine. If 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 marrying is you know so upsetting to you, so once he said, "Nope, you're being selfish, and I'm not going anywhere," she had nothing left to play. Honestly, there's no cards left. So and and she, I mean, she essentially said that when she closed the door. She's like, "What am I supposed to say?" Left, like she could not have picked. A more defensible guy (laughs) you know like to where i there's nothing i can say here we were sitting here trying to come up with all these reasons why the reverend might be an unsavory character but now that he's apparently turning out not to be at least at this point yeah agnes just has no ammo left i really feel for her but i really really like the banister quip with her basically that like you know what like what are you doing what are you doing you're gonna regret this and I'm going to support Miss Ada. I was actually surprised at how bold he was. You know, once you get all those people talking against you, I don't know what choice you have.
0: Have you changed your mind? Certainly not. I've just come down to say goodbye. Dasho. I see they've made you an accomplice in their betrayal?
1: She must have a man to give her away, Aunt Agnes. Surely you can see that.
5: No, she can't
0: come on we don't want to be late at two bannister
1: i'm going to support miss Ada, aderman and i urge you to do the same or you may regret it for the rest of your life
2: bannister has this this gravitas about him that when he says it it feels like it really matters to Agnes like she actually is going to listen to him probably over almost anyone else in that whole house because because I think she knows that he is at the same level of decorum and formality and wanting things to be right just as much as she is. So when she sees him say, hey, I'm just doing the right thing and and you're going to regret this, I think that snaps to more than. All the appeals of everything else. It's like this is almost like Miss Manner standing in front of her saying, like, you're doing it wrong and you know you're doing it wrong.
3: It's a little ghost of Christmas future for me because I think you're right. I think Bannister has the gravitas and has the weight with her, carries the weight with her to push her over the edge and make her I mean she's wearing this dress that is so dark green it might as well be a black morning dress but she changes she changes into that black and pink uh, look like velvety kind of material for the wedding so she goes and does and gets dressed and goes to the church Uh, but I feel like Bannister needed to go last I feel like the other two ghosts of Christmas Marion I guess being the ghost of Christmas past and Reverend being the ghost of Christmas present uh, she needed to hear from them and their respective views so Bannister could come in and push her over the edge. If if this episode starts with Bannister admonishing her that way, I don't, I don't know that we get there in the same. I think she needed him to be the last out of three people working on her. Plus, it's a nice bookend to her at the beginning, making him rescind his congratulations, which he does, even though he does it with apology. Before we move off of it, I wanted to just go back into her conversation with the Reverend. There's so much there that we can unpack and we probably could spend an entire episode just unpacking that conversation. But the one thing I really picked up on that I wanted to just note for listeners, before you think Agnes too much of a monster and man, when she says stuff like a spinster, you'll always be a spinster. You've always been a spinster. It's hard not to think of her as a monster. But her reaction of, one, uh, establishing there's no money, which is interesting because that was one of our concerns. If this was, if the Reverend was was enough other Eckert uh, come to fleece an easy mark in the city, which maybe he still is. But I feel like it has shifted more back to the middle or at least we're neutral on the reverend after this episode. But then she says love seldom survives marriage. That's her speaking of her own experience. And that is so sad and it's so pessimistic, but really it's so sad. And I think it's important to hear her say because it helps frame her point of view on all of this. You, 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 you keep saying she seems so down on marriage in general. This is why when, when something like marriage so seldom, love so seldom survives marriage
2: this absolute sadness there, there was a specific moment and I'm, I'm afraid you guys, I'm not going to be able to, to tell you exactly when it was, but I saw something change in Baranski's face when they're talking about it. It's when they're all sitting in the living room and 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 Ada's just saying everything about getting married. It's like her face kind of breaks and you realize the trauma of her own marriage. And you realize that she honestly thinks that she is like the warrior that is that is the one that had to go to battle, a.k.a. get married, in order for all the rest of these people to be protected. And she just looks so wounded at the prospect that her baby sister would also have to take up a weapon and go into marriage like it's like she just couldn't even like she she had endured all this to keep her from having to do this it it is terribly sad The, the entire thing is terribly sad that this is Agnes's life and now this is how she moves forward for the the lack of support for the rest of her family members it really it really hurt my heart and even even the conversation with the reverend you could hear how painful her marriage was it, it was a lot i mean do you think that audiences are being too harsh on agnes when she is So clear that marriage was so difficult and so painful for her. Do you think they're being too hard on her when they're like, she's being too mean and she shouldn't be talking to people like this? Like, do you think they're not understanding her point of view and what she's been through?
3: You know what? I think she fails to remind us of it. And maybe it's not her job to remind us of it because we get these glimpses of her when she's with the reverend and and being vulnerable and speaking from her pain and her and her broken heart we get that so little and we get so much nasty you know vitriol from her it's easy to forget how wounded an animal she is and and how she strikes out from that position that no 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 creature is more deadly or violent than when it's wounded and i think agnes is a crystallized wounded animal beyond repair i think the best she could ever hope for is some level of neutral but she'll never be a champion of love or marriage again it's all transactional at best for her, if it's even that. I understand why audiences are upset with her, you know, as much as she can make you laugh when she says things, even when she's being nasty, like, we your congratulations, which, again, made me laugh. We forget. And that's why I wanted to bring up that line from her conversation with the reverend, because It's important to understand her motivations. She's not being a bitch just to be a bitch. She doesn't know any other way. She literally can't help it, I don't think. Does that make sense? Or is that letting her off the hook too much? I don't know.
2: I, I mean, if you're letting her off the hook, I'm probably letting her off the hook even more because I, I truly look at her like a PTSD soldier. Very like I so. really look at her as somebody who endured something terrible and she really thought that she was doing it for the greater good. So any amount of undermining that, anybody doing anything that sort of upsets what she set forth for them – It's it feels like such an affront to her because it's it's like you're not appreciating the sacrifice she made for her of her own body, mind and soul in order for you to have this life. And she just wants people to respect that. And we don't really have a good timeline as to like when Arnold died, like how long she endured all that, how long she protected perhaps Oscar from all that. Ada, you know, has already said things like you do, you wouldn't want to be alone in the room with him. I mean, all of those things make me think like she's looking at Ada and looking at Oscar with these wide eyes, like, you know what we've been through. I can't believe you would like willingly walk back into a situation like that. And it's like, no one's really giving her that gratitude and respect of like, you, you did do this for us, but not every marriage is like that. And it's okay for us to move forward as a whole family, even though that was a really traumatic time. Like no one's really acknowledging that. So I just, for, for Agnes's character, And this can be the last time I even go into it, but I really want to give her all of my respect for what she tried to do for her family and what she obviously endured a great deal of personal pain in order to be able to accomplish this for her family.
3: I think everything you're saying makes a lot of sense, too, especially when you look at it from Marion's point of view, which we talked last season so often. Marion's naivete, we used to talk about as she because she was the avatar for the audience. So she had to ask all of the questions as being the one newest to this world. She asked all the questions that we wanted to ask. And it presented her in a certain light. But there is a generational gap here. And you go back to her conversation with Agnes, where she's talking about how you, you honor the living, you honor the dead by bullying the living, which to her eyes seems right, but she is not appreciating the weight upon her shoulders of the legacy and of, of being the matriarch that has to keep it all together, nor is she giving any credence or concern to Agnes's experience, which was all agony. Yeah, she she gets Oscar out of it. But even when she is reflecting on Oscar's birth, she's reflecting of it as an experience shared with Ada, not an experience shared with her husband, who I guess maybe maybe he was maybe he had died by that point. I don't even know or men weren't maybe in the delivery room at that point.
2: I don't even think it's like a delivery room. I think you probably just have them at home. I mean, I I think that's where we're at.
3: Of course, that makes sense. And the the idea that she doesn't think of Arnold when she thinks about delivering Oscar. She thinks of Ada as being there. That's her real partner in life. And Marion isn't appreciating that at all. And again, I understand Marion's point of view. We see this all the time in in real life with generations, young people, generations not understanding not only their parents, but even more so the grandparent generation who seems so removed from everything that a young person makes sense to them. And I think Marion is a good stand-in for that kind of point of view and maybe for the audience. I think, again, here Marion is a good avatar for how a lot of the audience feels and views Agnes, that she has to to be beaten and cajoled into coming around to doing the right thing.
2: I think that we need to go back to Lord Julian Fellows and understand that He does not choose to beat us over the head with the details. A lot of times really important details are a one-liner. And if you don't pick it up, if you didn't hear Ada say, Arnold is not the type of man you'd want to be alone in a room with. If you didn't hear that, then you don't get Agnes for the rest of the entire series. You don't understand her. This show is so nuanced that if you are having a problem with a character, I really encourage you to go back and listen, maybe not to them, but what other people say about things in their life, like that Ada comment, where you can put it together and say, hang on a second. This was a more serious situation just because the show isn't putting a spotlight on it, because that's not Lord Fellow's style. He does shy away from things when it gets really ugly And he tends to, you know, just move on and that's fine, except for it makes people hate characters like Agnes, who who is showing the depth of pain without really having told us what happened. We just have to kind of infer and understand, Okay, it must have been a pretty horrific life writing i don't know for you having you know watched out Abbey and everything if you found that like the subtlety can sometimes can sometimes you know make the characters a little bit harder to to really relate to and, and maybe sometimes, sometimes people aren't picking up on things that really are important
3: oftentimes i think downton was was Good was good about this, or was something about down. But I think Gilded Age, uh, even ten tenfold more, there is a subtlety to the themes that is easy to miss if you're not paying attention, because I think you're 100% right. If you miss that line, you really miss a cornerstone of who Agnes is. And it's even harder to understand because it's not Agnes herself delivering the line. It's it's the person who witnessed Agnes's marriage that's delivering the line. So it's easy to get caught up in just the surface level spectacle of the show and miss the fact that there is some real poignant, relatable human emotion things going on here and real character development going on here and and I you know i I'm not Christine Baranski's agent uh, but I, you have to you have to consider she submits maybe this episode for her Emmy consideration uh, there there's a range here of anger and to from anger to vulnerability to resignedness at, at the end yeah. uh, you know she, she's yeah. she's giving a, a master class in, in a range of emotions a lot of times even with her face without even her having to speak
2: if people will go back and listen to some of the beginning stuff, maybe even go revisit season one, I think you'll understand more about why Agnes is the way she is. But we're talking so much about Agnes, and this was Ada's wedding. This is the crux of the issue, isn't it? It's all about Agnes, but it should be all about Ada.
3: This is my exact thought. Was, I just of...
2: did a full Italian hands, Mike. You'd be so proud of me. I literally one hand, my right hand is, is working working the air all around me with this.
3: New York, New York giant football fans are living through the age of tommy devito an undrafted quarterback third string quarterback for the giants who has started the last few games he is 25 years old he lives with his mother she does his wash she makes some chicken cutlets before games (laughs) it has been all the rage and his whole thing is he he makes the uh the fingers like the fingers like when something good happens or he gets a touchdown so it's become quite a meme. the the there is a there is an emoji on your phone that has the fingers and they are getting it's going to be on t-shirts it's It's all the rage right now in New York football, so we're living through the Italian hands these days up here. Let's talk about Ada. Let's talk about (laughs) Ada and the Reverend and Ada and Marion and Ada and her right to be happy and the role that faith plays in it. I want to start with the sermon in the drawing room where uh, Reverend Apostle draws upon one of the apostles. Uh, Specifically, he's talking about Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That's the Bible reference that the reverend is referring to when he's talking about his time in Boston and how he didn't want to go. Apparently, he was not run out of Boston like I had surmised. He was ordered to leave Boston and come to New York. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave his parish, or so he says, and his bishop reminded him of this quote, and so he obeyed. And decided that faith would be his guide to make sense of why he was being forced out of the home he loved. And he goes on to say that his faith has rewarded him so much because his faith led him to Ada and to this happiness that he didn't know he would find, especially in the wake of his mother passing and leaving the only home he had known. Now, that passage... Uh, about jesus and lord please take the cup from my lips it's about jesus realizing he has a duty he has to do but still having a moment of questioning it and, and, and praying that God changes his mind. and But God's not going to change his mind, and he is going to have to die for our sins. This takes place after the Last Supper, and Jesus is aware that he's been betrayed or is, is being betrayed at that very moment. And he knows what his future is. That's the whole trinity, is that he is human, but he is also God, and he knows what is foretold for him. We really have to focus on the back end of that, that it's not about faith in god it's more about obeying god's commandment and then having faith that it's all going to work out for however it's supposed to work out and that's what the reverend does and it's led him to hear and so i think as his way of relaying this is trying to tell ada whatever you choose to do you ultimately have 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 to have faith that it's going to work out the way it's supposed to work out in the same way that he had no idea when he was coming to New York he would find her Ada has to follow her heart and and not make decisions because she's scared or because she's worried about her sister's wrath or anything else but just putting faith in the idea that if you follow your heart you'll wind up where you're supposed to be it's actually a little bit mixed metaphor I think he could have used a better parable for what I think he was trying to tell her But I do like the idea of at some point you just have to let go, you know, you know, go, just, you know, go with God. Right. (laughs) Right? You have to, you have to, you have to just kind of let it be.
2: Well, and you know what? Emotions and feelings and love is one of those. It's not quantifiable. It's not something that's, that's easy to wrap your arms around. And so, yeah, a lot of it is just faith. You just are hoping that when push comes to shove, You know, it all works out, but you can't have guarantees on everything and everything's fluid. So hopefully as you as you're going through like crises in life, you know, the love goes with you, but you can see obviously for agnes's you know history love you know vanished for her and she's just afraid of that maybe that's it mike maybe she's just afraid of her family members having to experience the pain most especially ada who's so soft and sweet she just can't imagine her having to experience the pain of Losing love—that if it if it does fall out from under her, what will happen then? How will she feel? I mean, I just want to give—I so, want to give so many like little ways out for Agnes because I really don't hate her, and everybody else is really hating
3: her. Well, I think there's definitely an aspect of Agnes, her feelings and the way she talks to people about love, and you know, marry for money and for status, and and don't even let love be a concern because it is a. You know, hope for the best, but expect the worst. But it's not even really hope for the best. It's just expect the worst. So don't even, uh, you know, harden your heart because it's not going to work out your way anyway. And I think that's how she approaches it because that was her experience. And so that's how she approaches it for other people. What is love? Love, love. Love doesn't get you through the day knowing you're honoring your duty and doing the right thing for your family or for whoever comes next after you is what gets you through that's agnes's experience so i think you're right i think i think it is based out of protection for those around her you know for their feelings but it's less of a conscious decision i think and more of one she just doesn't know any better she only knows this way she couldn't do what the reverend is asking ada to do here
2: I think so. And, you know, just generally, I think the idea of just having this companionship with the Reverend and Ada. I mean, I think Agnes had just counted on that her and her sister would live out their days together. And so she didn't have to think about who am I going to talk to? What's my companionship situation? Whatever. And now she's looking at the Reverend. The Reverend's like going to get Ada as like her, his partner for like chit chats and, and dinner and doing activities and stuff. And now Agnes is like, well, crap <laughs> Like I lost my buddy here in this whole process which I didn't appreciate in the first place and I, I wasn't appreciating Ada in the first place and maybe that's the lesson maybe it's like appreciate what you have because maybe if things were going better between you and Ada maybe she would have listened and talked to you more and you could have gotten comfortable with this idea of her getting married instead of her feeling like she had to hide it and then spring it on her you know where it was just happening in in a week's time very stressful the whole thing i i really was excited for ada i couldn't believe we actually saw this wedding happen in this episode i i I was like time is just confusing the hell out of me right now because so we like launched ahead of week but like i didn't expect to see a wedding in an episode five like that threw me that's that's a finale situation
3: can i give you a little a little secret just yeah. don't tell any of our listeners. Okay. I knew there was a wedding in episode five. I've oh, you knew it
2: was going to be in episode five?
3: It's one of the spoilers we're not allowed to reveal from when we got oh. screeners. And there's, there's, well, there's, there's more to come, but the spoiler didn't say. Whose wedding it was going to be? Do you just think that it was, was going to be
2: Mr. Rakes? That's why I brought it up when I brought
3: it up because I thought they were going to circle back around to Mr. Rakes.
2: Oh, but I knew that that the actor wasn't coming back. So well, I mean, but there was a end. way
3: that they could cover it without showing him. But yeah, I really no, thought that's you... true.
2: That's true. That's true. Okay, but wow. I mean, but were you so shocked then that was, this was I Ada's was, yeah. wedding and that we actually saw like enough of it? Like we're not. I'm sure we're not going back to anything else with it. So we saw enough of it. That it's like wow, that was actually happening, and you know what? As much as I was like, "Why is she wearing this blue dress?" and like, "Man, I don't really." Whoa, like this. What did
3: you think of the dress? This was one of my questions. So I'm curious what you thought of the dress by itself, and then what did you think of the dress with Bridget's adornments to it? Those two floral stripes that she was putting. On okay, the, so the here's upper something shoulders. funny.
2: So my son was walking through the room when when that was happening when that when Bridget was actually like laying these things on, and I was like, "This is her wedding dress." And then he was like, "He's like, well." I guess her maid's going to add those suspender things <laughs> and I was like laughing I was like suspender things but you know what here's the deal I, I did not really like it as, as a thing I love that color no, blue but I, but I did not like this at all but 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 when she put the veil on and she had the really colorful flowers like in her hair it actually brought it together for me in a way that I was like I'm okay with this I'm actually okay with this it's full of life It has all this vibrancy to it. It's it's exciting and like hopeful looking. The the flowers were so like really fresh looking to me in a way that was like okay. Even though this wasn't what I expected at all, I think she would have looked silly in what we would have considered a more traditional wedding dress. And this was obviously like a we're just doing this as a small little get together kind of thing. So anytime when that happens, brides can wear kind of whatever they want to. I but the veil brought it all together as is it always does if anyone who watches say yes to the dress the key moment is when they say let's put the veil on and when they put the veil on that's when it's like Ta-da! okay this is actually a wedding dress and this is the one that was the moment for me prior to that i was like oh my god i can't believe this is what AD is wearing but okay fine how about you were you like what the what I know you love those suspenders as well. I I
3: actually thought the floral aspects were horrible, but I actually liked the color blue (laughs) and I felt like it was the whole ensemble felt very right for Ada. Uh, Let's let's wrap up Ada's wedding and the Ada aspect of the show with her conversations with Marion, because in the same way... Bannister pushes Agnes over the edge to repent and come to the wedding. I think it is Marion and her conversation with Ada. That steals her nerves and her spine enough to go through with it more so than even her conversation with with Reverend Apostle, which is why I think the Reverend tells her, please don't make a decision or make or decide anything until you've spoken to Marion one more time, because he understands the sway that she is going to have with Ada. So let's listen to that clip, because I think it's important.
5: I daren't sit with all these pins. Who knows if I'll ever even wear it?
4: What do you mean? Perhaps it's time I face the facts. What are you saying? I can't turn my back on my sister. So you're going to give up Luke Forte? Just to satisfy Aunt Agnes? No. Not give up exactly. But perhaps if we postpone things until Agnes comes around. You can't live your life waiting for Aunt Agnes's approval. But she's so. No! This quarrel is of her making. You have done nothing wrong and won't let you spoil your future.
5: But she refuses even to be there.
4: I have no one to take me down the aisle. Cousin Dashiell has invited me to a picnic luncheon. I'll ask him to give you away. Do you think he would? Oh, <laughs> it does sound respectable. I'll go fetch Bridget. We need this dress to be finished in time. Luke told me to
5: speak to you before I made a final decision. Now I know why.
3: First off, I wish Marion had a fraction of the facility with her own life as she does with helping other people in their lives. Be it Oscar or Larry or Ada. Her advice for others is so much better always than her advice that she follows for herself.
2: (laughs) I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, though, isn't that the truth for many of us? It's really easy to give advice. It's really hard to follow our own advice, right? Even when we know it's good. What do you
3: think of the concept of you can't live your life waiting for Agnes's approval? And let's take Agnes out of it and just say you can't live your life waiting for ever approval because that's on them to do and not on you.
2: I think it's especially poignant given throughout the episode how many people we realize that that are being counted in for this approval. So when Agnes like invokes the name of their dead parents, like, I'm sorry. So we're supposed to be like, uh, you know, appeasing dead people and being mean to, you know, bullying the living in order to appease the dead kind of stuff. So we're trying to, we're trying to get the approval of our dead parents. We're trying to get the approval of Agnes. We're trying to worry about what's going on with the rest of the house. Like for me, yeah, at some point, Ada's got to say, I, I, I can't possibly please all these people. And some of these people are not even alive anymore who we're apparently trying to please. No, I mean, at some point you've got to put yourself first and say, you know, I- If this is the right fit, then everything will fall into place around me. And to be honest with you, I mean, this is a whole lot over nothing. I mean, these are two adult people. There's no there's no kids. There's no like large extended families that have all this. There's no money to really deal with. Like this is a pretty simple situation where two people are just deciding to spend more time together legally. (laughs) Like that's it. You know, But
3: think about though. I mean, look, think about Armstrong who so often is a parrot of Agnes, at least Agnes for who she's been for most of her life, saying there's no way Ada will have the courage to go through marrying someone that Agnes doesn't approve of, which I think is why it's such a. It's, it, I agree, it is very much a do about nothing, but not to Ada though, not having her sister's approval really requires everyone pushing her from behind it requires many people coming out to the church of her loved ones and cousins coming out and Mrs. Bauer and Bridget saying, I want you to have happiness and Daschle, this cousin from her sister's side saying you deserve happiness. And Marion, most of all Marion, because her and Ada have become such confidence. And Marion, in so many ways, is Ada in the past or Ada can possibly be Marion's future in so many ways. They're mirrors of each other. She requires all of those people, a real village, to get her, to steal her, to stand up to her sister. So, yes, I think to us, it's very much a do about nothing, but not to her. It is it is the only one, I think, that is very much a thing with
2: so I don't want I don't want my words to be kind of like in any way confused because I, I don't want to I don't want our audience to think I'm saying like this is no big deal. What I'm saying is like Agnes will still probably see Ada every day, like she's making Which is what it out. I think was trying to business. say yeah, right. he, and he was inviting her into their life. He's like you you know we we can all do stuff together. Like and probably there's plenty of times when guess what the Reverend has a job. He's gonna go off to work every day and go do his thing, and I'm sure Ada will help at the church, but. Of course she will be able to have lunch with Agnes or hang out or go to do something with her or whatever. That's what I mean. Is like Agnes is acting like she's going to vanish off the planet. And it's like she's just down the street and and, you know... <laughs> it's not like you guys like you know spend every second together so i don't know it's, it's one of the beck and
3: the, call though right that's what Marian I, it calls it is her
2: the on. beck and call yes yes it's what Marion said like basically you can't have her anytime you want her just because you snap your fingers well guess what that's a gross relationship anyway so <laughs> we can't give that much right we can't be like oh let's feel sad for it like no no that's weird and, and she shouldn't have been treated like that ever so
3: Let's take stock of where the reverend is in our hearts and minds at the end of this episode. Let's take into account his meeting and his discussion with Agnes. Let's take into account his discussion with Ada and specifically his suggestion to her to not decide anything until she speaks to Marion. Is the reverend being crafty or wise? Is he being sincere or conniving? At the end of this episode, where are you feeling about the reverend? Because I think both of us were feeling very negative towards him for rushing all his, for his can't wait sweatiness at the end of episode. Four, after all of this, where where is he on your sincerity meter and his likability meter?
2: I mean, I, I guess I'm okay with it. He said and did all the right things in this episode. He sure
3: did. He sure did.
2: But does is my heart totally settled? For some reason, not really. But but I don't have any exact things to point to. But. I don't feel exactly perfect about him, but ask, he really did you know, say and do the right things I, in this I, episode.
3: I feel the same way, and I—I th- I think for me anyway, it is actually his suggestion. He says the right thing to her. He says, "This is the hardest choice, Ada. You're going to have to make, but you're not alone." By the by, don't decide anything until you speak to Marion. That line really didn't sit well for me. It it felt very manipulative because he knew how Marion was going to vote and how she was going to push. So... I think I agree with you. He said all the right things, especially with Agnes. I think he said all the right things. I think he was respectful, but firm. I think what he said to Ada and his story about leaving Boston really cast that in a new light. I don't I I'm not sure that I think now that maybe he's on the run from bookies or the mafia in Boston. Uh, It seems like he was ordered to come to New York now, if that's a true story he was telling. But the don't decide anything till you speak to Marion felt very manipulative to me or a a part of me. It it has not sat well. I have now I've been thinking about it for a while. I have watched that scene a lot of times because I had to pull the audio for it.
2: Like we said from the start, he said and did the right things in this episode. But I'm left a little unsettled about him and not 100 percent sure why. And it could be for the sheer reason that we did this very quickly. This all happened very fast. I mean, I think we got 3 hours to get to know this guy at all. Now we're married to him. So, I like that's really fast. I'm going to leave it I'm leaving it up on our corkboard as like a hmm. This still feels a little hinky and I don't know why, but it does. Let's put, let's pin that on our board, okay? Hinky hinky situation over here. Not sure why.
3: I like Ada was surprised that the church actually had it- As many people in it, but again, just listening to Ada's words, I think she needed that though. She needed that affirmation that this was right and that people do care about her happiness because I think Ada views herself not much more than an appendage to Agnes. So yeah. I think it was so important for her to see that, no, you are a standalone person that people like and want and root for and are going to come out for. I mean, Aurora and Charles were there and they mentioned that she brought other cousins with them. Mrs. Bauer just saying, you know, we just want your happiness. Everyone's being so earnest with her. There's so many times I think people live their whole lives without really understanding or appreciating what they mean to those around them until it's too late. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a classic Friends episode, right? For Ross, Ross pretends to to have died in order to get people to say nice things about him at his wake because he's not sure if anyone even cares about him at all, which is gross. But it's the same idea, right? We, we, I wish, I wish we all could know what people would say at our funeral before it had. We had to wait for that part.
2: I love that we have such different reference points. I would never have referenced friends. I would, however, reference Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn faking their own funeral. <laughs> And in order to watch and see what people would say about them, very different. They're well, a very different much, source of material.
3: You're much more well read <laughs> than I am. And
2: I'm why. not. I'm a children's book reader <laughs> as a teacher, and so that that's where it would come from for me. But but I think that that's something that people do lament all the time that that really the people who love you the most and say that the most honest things about you, and they're they're love for you is at your funeral when you don't get to know and so it is such a sad thing so really besides say birthdays and like weddings we don't get very many opportunities to really feel like who shows up for us and when
3: or Duke, Duke dinners, but we're not quite there yet. Duke
2: dinners, we're definitely not we get, there you get, yet. <laughs> you get to hear
3: people cheers you and say you're a leading citizen like, in the community. Let's talk yeah. about Oscar. Let's let's not leave the Van Rines just yet. Hey, but yet. wait,
2: I have to say one thing. I do okay. appreciate how you said it because it felt like you picked it right out of my brain. Like, I almost mouthed the words with you, which it's not on our paper, but being an appendage of Agnes, man, that phrase, yes, that is why I felt like Ada needed to see that church. She needed to see that she is a whole person all by herself it is not always got to be agnes and her kid sister ada she can be ada all alone and a little bit i thought she at the end was going to choose to walk down the aisle by herself because there was that moment where it was like dashwell or oscar and I don't she think was she like she
3: really wanted to walk with dashwell at all that felt like oh, a i real, don't think so either a real but second prize it
2: was but but for just a second i thought she was going to get that like independent streak and be like you know what I could just be Ada and walk down the aisle by myself. You know, I get it. It's of the time and culture and whatnot, but I'd like to think that just for a moment, she had that much guts and that much like support that she felt like she could have walked down that aisle no matter who was with her, which felt really great. And a a really big character moment for Ada, which PS I do not like Cynthia Nixon in sex in the city. So It is a really big deal that she's killing this character because I really like Ada and I really like her as Ada and I don't like her in other roles. So that's huge for me. I don't know how you feel about Cynthia Nixon in particular.
3: She was always my least favorite Sex in the City character, and I don't think that had as much to do with Cynthia Nixon as much as it just had to do with her character. But I, I think this is a really natural blend for the charisma. The, the, she brings a very specific kind of charisma to the screen as an actor, and I think Ada is a perfect match for that. I, she really embodies this role. I I I think a lot of these roles you could probably find other people to play. I'm hard pressed to think of someone that would be nailing Ada Brooke as much as Cynthia Nixon is nailing it.
2: I didn't know she had it in her. And, and, and it's great. She's doing a really bang up job with her. The
3: Curious Case of Oscar and Maud.
2: I think they're going to be our Bonnie and Clyde. I, I, let, I want let, them to be.
3: Let's break this down because I I watched it. I I wrote it down. I can tell you the straight narrative. But ever since I've committed that to paper, my brain has just been spinning that there's actually a lot more here. I gotta tell you, my favorite my favorite storyline in the episode, actually the 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 dangle of what may be coming up here. I'm a corporate securities lawyer. I, I like business talk, so I am naturally always very cat to catnip with these kinds of storylines. We need to evaluate Oscar, Maud, and Mr. Crowther, and then Oscar and Mr. Crowther, through the lens of what comes before. Maud appears at the Fane's house and is asking for a straight shot evaluation of... Is Oscar a fortune hunter? And Aurora, does, she kind of ducks the question and she says he is clever. He is funny. I like him very much and I think he will do very well. But there's no rush. Take your time and then you make the decision. So she absolutely doesn't answer the question at all, but says good advice. You, you do need to not rush and you do need to make ultimately the decision yourself, Maud. She leaves and then Aurora Charles comes in. She's like, I wish you would come sooner. She asked me this question. I didn't know how to answer it. I would totally watch a Charles and Aurora Fane spinoff, like a rom-com 30-minute sitcom. These two I love. They have no fucking problems. They they're just like come... they like
2: the next-door neighbors like in every sitcom. They're like the next-door neighbors who like bebop over. <laughs> but they're two
3: beautiful next-door neighbors who have no problems, ever. What does Charles do all day other than, obviously, he must do sit-ups for most of the day. I imagine Aurora sings and just, you know, just pops in here and there. She just gets to go to awesome parties. But they have no issues. I love these two. I want the Christmas <laughs> episode to be a Fane's Christmas. Okay. Anyway, Oscar escorts Maude to the meeting with Mr. Crowther, so this appears to be the business that she was hinting at last week. If we're taking at face what is being said in this meeting, this is what it appears to me. Jay Gould has a shell company that he is not directly associated with that Mr. Crowther is the one running point on, and that shell company is planning on taking over the Chicago and Atlantic Railway. And this is what Jay Gould, as Maud's father or alleged father, has her working on with the contracts and the stock certificates and everything she was talking about last week several times that we were question mark, question mark, question mark, curious about. Oscar, having been informed or overly informed by Maud, much to Mr. Crowther's chagrin, mentions knowing all about the takeover, wants to know more about the company. He's given a booklet to read up on it, asks about whether Mr. Gould is satisfied, which Mr. Crowther shits himself out. Oh, heavens, you are well informed. And then he says, "Do you actually have all of the money you need to do the deal?" And Mr. Crowther, you know, hedges and says, "No, but we're only a little short. We we suspect that we'll have it in the next couple of weeks." After, so, Oscar sits with this meeting. We learn about the takeover. Oscar asks very pointed questions. Mr. Crowther gets very upset that he knows as much as he does. That's the end of this. He comes back and we see him writing a check, and he basically forces himself into an investor group. Here's the question: Maud isn't with him, so in my initial question was, will Maud be upset that Oscar went back without her there and forced himself to invest in this company?
2: I don't know if upset's the right word, maybe surprised for sure, and then also maybe skeptical. I, I mean, obviously she went to Aurora to be like, is this guy in the up and up? Like, what is going on? So she already was trying to kind of make sure of, of him. And then this move, I you know, I don't it would take me aback for sure. I don't know if upset is right. I I don't that mm. Do you think upset? Do you think that she's going to be angry at him? for doing here's
3: this? My, here's where my brain went after after my initial thought was, I think this is a fortune hunter test. When you use her conversation with Aurora and Aurora's advice to take your time and make the decision for yourself. She's a woman of means. We know she has money. She's she could probably order this Crowther or anyone else who works for Jay Gould to do, you know, stand on their head for an entire day. I'm not sure I'm sold on this, but this feels like is very possible to me this whole thing is a carrot to see if oscar will jump at it and oscar comes running with his checkbook to jump at it that feels exactly what maude is worried about
2: well that is really good insight i did not see that coming but that is a really good point that she wasn't there with him afterwards and she had been questioning beforehand i obviously threw you know her banker for a loop that he was a part of any of this so Clearly, you know something was going on here. I uh, I wasn't ready for that, but Maude Beaton is tricky. I mean, I said at the top of this, like Bonnie and Clyde, like she does have to suss him out. Is this what she wanted him to do? Is she swindling him? There's four scenarios. There's four scenarios? The
3: first scenario is she knows that he was going back to write a check because they're working together to get something over on her father and this takeover. Scenario one. Scenario two is this was a test set up to see if he would take the bait and prove her instincts one way or another about whether or not he was a fortune hunter. And the fact that he comes with his checkbook and forces his way in without her there lends credence to that. Three, this is escape. Scam. they're both being scammed by Mr. Crowther and that Mr. Crowther is actually not working with Jay Gould's approval and that they're both being taken down the road or four is this is all on the up and up and she was aware of it and this is a legitimate deal and he is investing it's a way of cementing them together
2: oh i think it's i think i think that if Maud is scamming Oscar that's the most interesting one for me that's more interesting than any of the rest because, man, if she actually like went to his family member and said, like, is he like a bad guy? But then really she was planning on doing this. Like, that's the most diabolical. She,
3: remember, the key, remember, it's, it's always a, a short line that you have to pay attention to. She says, he wouldn't be the first, and I don't want to get my wings burned again. Yeah. This is, this feels like something a woman who has been down this road, who has a lot of means at her disposal would go through to test the validity or legitimacy of her prospective husband's you know intentions if that's the setup oscar fails
2: i am scared for oscar now (laughs) (laughs) because it feels like oscar loses in like the majority of these scenarios yeah he can't help himself why if if,
3: why not just go back with her why oh, not? Man. Right. Yeah. That's all he would have to do. To, to He would be like, yeah. I think I think I can supply the rest of the money for your father's takeover. Come back with me. Let's talk to Mr. Crowther. He's so flip in that conversation. He's like, what? you know, the guy's saying, like, it's a closed investor partnership. Everyone knows each other. Oscar says, you know me. I know you. We both know Maud. Let's do some bit. He's being very flip considering Maud's not with them. I think he was being too flip. And that kind of hubris that is always going to burn Oscar in the end. Yes you know, humility Oscar is the Oscar that ultimately wins.
2: I, I'm with you and, and I'm nervous. I there There is only like a half of one scenario where Oscar's like in a good position and everything's okay. <laughs> Otherwise, every other scenario is like a trap in some sort and, and it all lands bad for Oscar. I want them to be together and I want them to be little shysters together. Like I want them to do this kind of like monkey business together. So I'm really sad if Maud would like already Turn on him, or if he's already turning on her, like I'm, like dang y'all.
3: That's interesting though, because I don't see it as her turning on him as much as her protecting herself.
2: Oh no, I agree. No, you're right, it, it is that is how it's ingenious. it is. I just, I, think I just it's with,
3: if she turns out she was doing this.
2: I just mean within the relationship, I want them to work together. I don't want them to work against each other. Me and too. so I when, like
3: them together a lot.
2: So I don't. So it makes me sad if the idea that like so soon so quick you know that mod would already be testing or doing anything like i don't know it just worries me
3: right i mean she ends up she's at the wedding with him and and so that has to be a day or so later if not more so who who knows how fast information is here it's curious there's only one one scenario one half of a scenario where it works out well for him the other ones are all traps traps (laughs) traps or scams
2: Traps are scams or somehow going to have you look like a fool. The whole thing is going to be bad. So, yeah
3: let's uh let's talk to about Marion because we already talked about how Marion seems she probably gets what's happening here but she seems very not into it she seems to like dasle perfectly well but they her pants don't seem on fire for him and Francis nah,
2: nah no no pants on fire no pants on fire but she has <laughs> such
3: great chemistry with Larry and we get the start of a Larry Harris. haiku lovers meet lovers part boo-hoo. I was like I was sitting there counting <laughs> counting con like counting uh <laughs> I, Larry funny. doing poetry right there on the street on 61st Street. I like Marion empathizes with Larry's heart. I mean, she's raising eyebrows and being all twin sufferers on the cruel carousel of life. Marion had all the good lines in this episode. He, he reiterates a line from their first episode of the, of the series when he says, let's be comrades in arms instead. And then they go off to the Central Park to pick flowers together for her watercolors class. I have to ask, is Larry going to be a foil to Dashiell now? Is this going to be like a duel between Dashiell and Larry or something?
2: I would like to think that Larry is a viable contender here. I mean, I do not see Marion having any big lusty feelings towards Dashiell. Everything there would be simply to just settle into a family and have it be something that's already, like, comfortable. And it really doesn't upset the apple cart at all because, I mean awkwardly they're already her cousins, <laughs> so she's already kind of you know she's gonna see them anyway <laughs> so it kind of is no big deal but i mean i uh, i can't i really can't get over that she has like very little chemistry with Dashiell now that the family thing has come to light like when we saw them in newport and all the treat talk and all that stuff they were having a fun time together everything was cool ever since this tea and and then everything since then has felt like she... The tea was a
3: bad, bad moment for her. It,
2: it really was. It really rubbed all the wrong way. And I I just... It's really falling apart there. And so if she were to move forward with him, I would feel like it would be very disingenuous because I I'm not seeing it. So Larry, though... First of all, can I just tell you that this was the first episode that I really paid attention to the curls of his hair because at one point, Bertha, like, reaches up and kind of, like we call it curl training. Like curl trains like the front of his hair. So she like she like uses her finger and like and like actually like works the little curl. How much he looked like George. I, I didn't mm. appreciate the casting until that moment because bertha walking up to him and touching his hair is so reminiscent of what she does with george that when i saw that with with larry i was like oh my gosh like that is really excellent casting and larry has kind of come into his own so the way that he speaks and the way that he carries himself is a lot more like george than last season where he was very much a kid in the household he very much spoke to her and just generally is is carrying himself more like an adult man there was a lot going on there, but you're right. I I really like Larry and Marion together. They actually have that spark that her and Dashville just don't.
3: Her pants don't necessarily seem on fire with Larry either, but she seems to genuinely like him and his company. And they're of the same age and they're really going through life in the same way. They, nothing, and, and I think we see this play out with Peggy and T. Thomas in the barn in their episode, nothing brings people together emotionally like shared trauma. And now Larry has gone through a very similar brokenhearted situation that Marion went through last season and that they were both there to able to confide in each other. And that, that can't be lost in everyone. Those things bond people together in a really significant way. It bonds people together on this show, but because it, it bonds people together on the show because it bonds people together in real life. Now, I want to play because you, you hit on something in what you were just saying about Marion and who will Marion ultimately be up with uh, end up with. We have to play actually the last. Conversation between her and Ada right before Ada walks down the aisle because it's actually not so much about Ada. It's actually really about Marion.
4: Are you nervous? Should I be? <laughs> I have no idea because I've never been in your position.
5: I thought no one would come because of Agnes, but they have. Now I'm just excited
4: and glad. You're so certain about marrying Luke. You have no doubts?
5: No. None at all.
4: I hope that's true of me when it's my turn.
5: Be sure it is. Marriage is something one should never settle for or talk oneself into. Yes. Thank you, Aunt Ada. We
4: should go. Yes.
3: <laughs> I don't think Marion really has to worry about the first part of that. I think it's the talking yourself into marriage that Marion's ultimately going to have to worry about because that feels like the road she's heading down with Daschle. She can marry him, but it's going to require her talking himself, talking herself into doing it. That... T- saying things like I do like him and I do love him and I like Francis and we are family and I, 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 you you know we all know into. we we all know these relationships where y- you you wind up with a person and then you have to talk yourself into why you're with them or why you take things further with them. I feel like this is universally relatable. Marion, after being there for Ada all episode, I love that this was a conversation still, you know, ostensibly about Ada. You're the one who convinced her to walk down the aisle and marry the Reverend. So you're asking, how do you not have doubts now? What are you doing Marion you just got her here now you're saying how do you have no doubts she's had nothing but doubts no this conversation is about Marion and what is Marion going to do and I think it's important people pick up on that that this is not a conversation about Ada this is this is now Marion's future will she marry for love or will she settle
2: I would like to think for Marion because she seems like somebody who is willing to buck the status quo I would like to think that she's not going to marry just for like convenience and comfort she's she's not really at that stage yet like like, Dashiell could be looking for someone five, ten years older than Marion and still be fine within his age range of people to be marrying. Like, she – he already has a kiddo, and she's 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 not, like, an infant or anything. So he already has a family and everything, and Marion's young enough to be, like, bearing kids. Like, they could swap. Like, Dashwell could go marry, like, Miss, Mrs. Blaine, you know, and, like – because, like, kids are already there, and it's already a family, you know? I hope that Marion really just follows her heart and, and does not – just I, I just don't see it happening. I don't see her ending up with Dashiell now.
3: No, I don't either. And it'll be interesting in light of Agnes coming around to go to Ada's wedding, what her position will be now on marriage going forward as relates to Marion. She reminds Marion several times in the last couple of episodes about the fact that she lives there rent-free and she lives there at her at her own will, at at, at Agnes's, you know. will and choosing and we're not done with Agnes interfering in Marion's love life to the extent of marriage being concerned. So it's going to be really interesting to see if Agnes has learned anything from her Ada experience that she will or can maybe apply to Marion's situation. I mean, certainly being able to marry into the Russell household will take care of the Van Ryn money in a significant way. It's just, can she get over her bias of the new versus the old? Let's talk about the servants, because the servants in the Van Ryn household actually raise an interesting discussion. They are sitting around the table, and Jack working on this clock, almost ready to test it. Miss Bauer is willing to be a, a, a test participant. He he sits back and he says, what happens if Ada does get married? Does Miss Agnes living alone still need all of the servants that they have?
2: I did think about it because it, it did make me worry. Like, I don't want to lose any of our characters. I wondered about, you know, the fact that Bertha is, is looking to hire and possibly Agnes would be looking to let go of some staff so they could just move across the street, which would be kind of like a funny mixing of staff members i i really don't want to lose anybody like to the show do you know what i mean like i don't want anyone off the show because they're no longer needed i want them to just move to a different household within our characters that we see so do what do you think is the possibility of that do you think we get to have anybody like it's sort of like survivor like everyone drop your buffs i'll let you know which tribe you're with now it's like maybe they could just kind of like go to other places
3: the only redundant person, really, in the Van Rhine house is Bridget, because Bridget is the lady's maid for Ada and for Marion. And, and our scenario, we're thinking Marion and Ada are no longer in the house, because unless Bannister is going to take up Jack's footman duties. Jack is needed. And everyone else, everyone else, there's no redundant people. There's one chef. Right. There's one lady's maid Armstrong for Agnes. There's Mrs. Bauer, the cook. There's Jack who does footman duties. There's Bannister who does servant duties. There's no one really to trim. All of those people are still required in an Agnes household, whether it's her or whether it's four people or five people living in the house. Because we've seen it, Jack Jack and, and Jack and Bannister are still waiting on Agnes, even when Agnes is alone. Bridget is only the odd duck out. And Bridget, even according to Agnes, could could take care of Agnes. Should she have to let Armstrong go because Armstrong is a racist piece of shit? That makes Bridget, when you compare her to Adelheid much more qualified as someone who could become bertha's permanent lady maid she's young yet she knows how to set a tiara she knows how to be a proper lady a ladies maid, because she has been a proper lady's maid to old money women for a long time drama wise makes her coming in and being over at Adelheid in the in the russell household really interesting from a narrative dramatic standpoint
2: I don't know very much about, like, Strata, where you would get to have a ladies' maid versus where you wouldn't. So, like, if Ada is moving on to a different household... Would she just not have any dressers or I don't anything know that anymore? She could
3: afford one, right? Right. Be well, that's. Over.
2: Well, I'm trying to think through, like, or is that something that like the church would pick up the cost? Like, oftentimes, like you know, the clergy like live in a home that's already paid for by the church. Right. So I wonder if like, do they also provide like a cook or a maid to like clean the home and make sure that the you know all the priests and or whomever they are in that particular religion are all paid. Uh, I'm sorry, are all fed and are all taken care of and everything. So. Would there be a staff that uh, that Ada would have? Like, could someone come with her so as uh, to also keep sort of like our our cast members like clumped together?
3: Maybe. I mean, it would make sense to me that there must be someone who cooks and cleans for Reverend Apostle in his rectory, maybe adding a woman, a lady's maid or some kind of woman servant. Even even Watson going out to San Francisco, if he was to take Robert McNeil's deal, was going to get a chef and a manservant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, even in that situation, he was going to get both. So maybe it's not unreasonable in this world. I'm curious how much a church, which you just imagine doesn't have unlimited funds, would would be willing to sponsor even still Bridget is young I can't see Bridget wanting to go live in a rectory for her next career not if she could also maybe legitimately go across the street and get that promotion
2: Agreed. but I think there's a couple different paths to keep the staff all on the show and there's a couple different paths of different people who we think could probably use that I mean we have to do we do need to mention that like the outfits that these ladies are wearing these costumes you cannot put them on by yourself like the way that they're corseted and tied up in the back and and all the different things like you have to have help. So it would have to be a situation where suddenly the reverend was lacing up the back of this corset and trying to do all that if, if Ada doesn't bring someone with. I think he's going to be
3: looking to undo the corset, if you know what I mean. I
2: don't know. Well, he hasn't really shown those proclivities, but we don't know. We don't know. He grabbed her
3: face quite awkwardly in the church <laughs> pew and kissed her face in a way that made me think he's never never kissed a woman before, but was really feeling it. <laughs>
2: never kissed a woman before i, I think really he's i it. think he's
3: looking forward Funny. to trying out all of the all of the uh merchandise <laughs> that hasn't been used in quite a while
2: if ever I, I it's unclear to me if if it's ever been used for either of them for
3: either of them i mean talk about the warranty has already expired and never used once who knows but, there's who no viagra in
2: this time knows? frame people
3: I mean, Mr. Winterton doesn't seem to need Viagra, so maybe the Reverend doesn't either.
2: Who knows? She's going to be fantastic
3: in bed to be such a raging bitch. Winterton? Uh, Yeah. Oh, I think she
2: just, oh, she's just, she'll do anything. She'll do anything. She's got no boundaries. So there you go. That's all you have to know about her in bed. No boundaries whatsoever. Oh, goodness. (laughs) (sighs) I
3: can't even get into that. Okay. Um
2: are you do you have a thing for mrs winterton
3: no 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 i was thinking about that she's just so nasty she's so nasty to <laughs> mr winterton and just in general and the way she screeches all the time like you know you have to admit it was a good dinner i wouldn't admit it if they ripped my fingernails off to make me oh she's lovely
2: so she's much. such she's <laughs> such a
5: she's such
3: a long day she's oh just got to fuck like crazy that's what i'm saying or, or just have him so fooled that things are happening that he doesn't even know.
2: I think it's like that. I think it's more like that. I think she's He's like got quite she's a like belly.
3: He, he may not even be able to see everything. She's that's happening using there, like there. props
2: and whatnot, uh, and she doesn't. He she's doesn't got even Peter, know. The down there, like, you don't. This is what I'm trying to say. Like you don't even know what's going on. I I don't think I don't think Headmaster Charleston knows what's going on either. And you know what? What a good illustration of like the love leaves marriage. It doesn't survive marriage. Like, you know, prior to she was all really uh, an exciting partner for him to have. And then now they're married. and He has to put up with her screaming, throwing these temper tantrums all the time. Like, God, you think Mr. Winterton could come and be consulted with Ada and everybody to be like, look, marriage is not all it's cracked up to be, ladies. Love is neither
3: kind nor patient.
2: (laughs) Or quiet in any way. (laughs) Love screeches
3: about her Duke and not another Duke.
2: The <laughs> love screeches about her fingernails. She's a little bit of a weirdo, my love is. <laughs>
3: Oh, my goodness. OK, Um let's switch over to the Russell House. I'm going to start with Larry because I agree with you. This was the first episode that Larry, I looked at Larry and I thought he actually looks like a man in this episode. He carried himself a, a little bit more. I think the the episodes in the Roebling House showed him in another light. He, he seemed like an adult man versus a little boy, which I think he has been portrayed as so often in this show, even when he's talking to Marion and he decides he says he'll go with her to pick flowers in Central park that is a man having that conversation not a forlorn forlorn lovesick puppy boy let's start uh, the episode begins with him being drunk with his harvard pal malcolm Keane. you get this quote from bertha
0: you can take a cab home when you get to new york
1: what about the dinner for the duke i thought my presence was required
0: not if you behave like
1: this <sighs> it's just a glass mother
0: how long do you plan to keep playing the fool i don't know
1: I suppose until it stops being fun
0: It's no fun for me, I assure you
1: I know you despised her
0: Mrs. Blaine wasn't right for you That's all I'll say on the subject
1: You have to admit you're pleased she's broken my heart
0: I won't admit anything of the sort I only ever want what's best for my children It'll do you good to be away from Newport There aren't any reminders of her in New York Now go and get ready
3: I don't think anyone should be surprised that she doesn't take a lap at his broken heart or being proved right. But I was surprised that he wasn't more openly mad at her, which I think you and I both discussed last week would make sense and maybe would, would be even justified. Were you curious that he seemed more just sad at the situation than angry at his mother?
2: Yeah, I, I really thought he was going to lay into Bertha a lot more about her intruding into his life, I think think the combination of time and really honestly the the fact that Mrs. Blaine was easy to walk away like I mean she was just like see you later you know I mean that that had to really hurt his feelings that like she didn't fight for this relationship in any way it, and maybe that took a little bit of the puff out of his chest to yell at Bertha because it's not it's not like Mrs. Blaine was like I'll do anything to stay with you just convince your mother you know like none of that happened she was just like no I'm done with you like you're too much of a problem I think that's Gotta be where then it takes all the wind out of his sails to even scream at Bertha, right? He's 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 bummed out for what happened. He's he's you know he's licking his wounds, but. I think he I think he sees what his mom said that you know like look, look, look she didn't fight for you man she didn't it's not it's not like she wanted you in particular she wasn't really in love with you
3: if she gives more of a this is your mother's doing and I can't be with you maybe that backs up his spine to be a little more fire and brimstone at his mother but why but be doesn't. mad at her right but she yeah. doesn't so why even be mad at Bertha when she's ultimately proven right Larry returns home to New York he has his interaction his haiku with with Marion which I have to repeat again because it's great. Lovers meet. Lovers part. Boo hoo. <laughs> <laughs> but George, as it turns out, I guess not really a surprise in this world, is a trustee, one of 20 trustees, if you're, if you're into the history of it, uh, on the board of trustees for the new Brooklyn Bridge, which is just getting ready to open. For history buffs, the bridge opens May 24th of 1883. And the fact that we're talking about dedication ceremonies and it feels like the bridge is just about done, I we have moved from the end of March. I think we are at least into May, if not significantly into the end of May, if there talking about the opening of the bridge, George implores him that Roebling is never around. Roebling is the engineer in in charge of the bridge. He's never around. They say it's his health. No one can ask him questions. Go to his house, suss out what's happening. And he does. Were you surprised at this Roebling story? We meet Emily Warren Roebling, though I don't think she's given a name besides Mrs. Roebling. Emily Warren Roebling, wife of Washington Roebling, who is the son of John A. Roebling, who is the Roebling we think about when we think about the Brooklyn Bridge, because he is the one who got the commission. He is the one who built all of the famous suspension bridges around the country, and he is the one who did the initial master design for the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, I'll fill in more history because it's actually pretty fascinating, but I'm just curious as a general matter, did you see this coming? I I said (laughs) at the end of last episode, I don't really want any new storylines. Here we are inserting Larry into the history of the Brooklyn Bridge opening.
2: So I did not know anything about this Brooklyn Bridge scenario, although I am familiar with the story, the general story of women were not allowed any power or status at this time. Their husbands fall sick and somehow they have to continue the work. So we've seen this, whether it's with like Eleanor Roosevelt or plenty of other women where it's like you think you you think the man is still doing the work, but in reality the woman is still keeping things running. I think that was not uncommon. In fact, if you watch Yellowstone, go back over to eighteen eighty three, that was also the plan. Just basically the woman's gonna run the show, but we gotta make it look like the guy's still doing just fine. This is very common. I didn't know this particular story. I think it's really cool that we're going to get a chance to learn more about it. And again, give more credit to women building this country where the, where the foundation lie with a lot of us too. Not, not we get a lot of founding fathers and we rarely ever speak of founding mothers when we all know there were plenty. So very cool. I'm, what I'm very curious about is how does this affect our characters. Because while it was a very interesting story, while it is a really cool extra piece of history to bring in, and I'm all good for that. Why? Why are we doing this? I personally like that we have Larry working with George. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that we're seeing this, and I very much said... Previous episode, when the four Russells were working together, I, even just standing together, I was like, I need this team to start happening. And so now when we're starting to get George and Larry working together, I'm like, OK, there's like two of our are like one are like fantastic four coming together. And then we know Bertha would be a part of this. So it's like I, I, I'm i excited about the Russells, like fulfilling their full potential power by all of them working together. And so that's the nugget I got here. Like maybe Larry will will get a taste for something more about his dad's business or working with his dad, and maybe that's why we're talking about this story. Did did you see this story coming in for any other reason?
3: No, other than to give Larry something to do. And and the Brooklyn Bridge opening is a monumental New York thing. It is the longest bridge until the Williamsburg just north of it opens, you know, 20 years later, 15 years later. This is an important thing that they kind of have to talk about or make mention of. So making Larry, and this I want to connect to your point, I think this is a genius move on George's part. Knowing his son's proclivities for wanting to do architecture and design, he could assign him to Pittsburgh or something with the union. God knows that is on George's mind and the thing he needs help with. But he gives him this task instead, a task that involves designing. It involves architecture and engineering, things Larry has, has education in and interest in. You know, Larry says to him when he first hears that he wants him to be his proxy as a trustee, he says, you know, I'm still interested in doing architecture. George's response is this won't take long. And you start studied engineering, you can say sensible things. This is a genius move on George's part to get Larry doing something that is part of George's work, like you said, but also that that Larry can't deny holds an interest for him. Is it redoing a house? No. It's building a fucking bridge that is going to be the longest bridge in the world. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? If I can get into a time machine and be part of this, of this, of this work, I absolutely would. My old office outside of Manhattan literally was right outside Height of the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I spent a lot of time and then I lived in Brooklyn Heights staring at the bridge. I spent a lot of time with the Brooklyn Bridge in my life. I have a giant painting of it over my couch in my living room from the dedication from the opening of the bridge. I, I'm very into the Brooklyn Bridge. So I was very excited to see this. But I think for Larry as a character, this is genius. I think it's a very smart way to bring in a very historical thing that they have to talk about and in loop in two of our characters, two of our main characters and give them something to do with it. I do want to get into the Roebling story a little bit because I think everything you're saying about women's place in history not being recognized or talked about is so true. So I like that they're talking about the story. So let's listen to Emily Warren Roebling. Uh, Let's listen to her talk about her story and then I'm going to add in some details on it.
5: When my father-in-law was first commissioned to design the bridge, my husband and I went to Europe to study what it would entail. Stress analysis, cable construction, calculating catenary curves, and the rest.
1: So you learned those things?
5: I know it is all considered beyond the grasp of a mere woman, but I did. Then my father-in-law died, and my husband was made chief engineer. But he fell ill soon after.
1: And then you took over?
5: Not at first. We worked together. I would deliver his orders and designs. But he got worse.
0: And then it was just you.
5: Last year, some of the board wanted to replace him. But Mr. Tate and I persuaded him not
1: to. So you would continue in charge of the work. And Mr. Tate knew.
5: Several of them knew.
1: But they couldn't make it public. Of course not. This bridge will be one of the finest in the land, in the world. You should be proud of it, but I suppose you can't be.
5: No one must know a woman was the engineer behind the bridge. They might not even want to walk across it.
3: Everything she says there is actually true. In 1967, John A. Roebling, finishing his Cincinnati, uh, Ohio suspension bridge, is given the contract to, uh, given the commission to, draft the master plan for the Brooklyn Bridge, the East River Bridge that would span Manhattan and Brooklyn. He does. 1967, he delivers his master plan. 1969, he's doing a survey of where the bridge is actually going to be located. So he's down by the Fulton Ferry. A ferry backs into his foot, crushing his toes. This is June, late June of 1969. Ferry backs into his foot, crushes his toes between the boat and the pier. His toes get amputated. He develops tetanus and he dies just 24 days after the accident. He dies in July of 1969.
2: Wild. I, I wish you could see my face right now. I'm like... Mm.
5: <laughs> it, 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 it's just an insane story.
2: so gruesome. But you know what? Hey, if you guys go and listen to our 1883 podcast, you'll find out that one of the main reasons why people died back then was from getting thrown off of the wagon and getting crushed in some way by their own wagon wheels. Like, that was a main way of dying. So getting crushed by a ferry on your foot seems like... Yeah, that shit happened. That's why there's all those signs by the docks now and and all those inflatables all around it. It's because it's shit like Roebling that happened. And the big rubber tires.
3: And I mean, it's not like these things don't exist. Like you can literally go and see all of these sites. So July 22nd, just 24 days after the incident, after the accident, Johnny Roebling passes away from his tetanus infection. After his death, his son, Washington Roebling, who had been working on the project with his father. He had been kind of his right hand man or like the next in charge of the project he gets named chief engineer he makes several important improvements in the bridge design he further developed the bridge building techniques he actually designed the two large pneumatic caissons that became the foundation for the two towers which are the architectural feature of the bridge part of this it leads to why he can't work on it in 1870 number like a year uh, after his father's death, a fire breaks out in one of the caissons. The caisson is basically a watertight structure in which the workers could work as they were preparing to lay the concrete foundation under the water, uh, an airtight place for pe- for workers to be working inside of as they actually laid the foundation down into the bedrock of the of the East River.
2: I cannot imagine that job. That would be absolutely insane. Like I like it, it's making my chest like tighten up just thinking about it.
3: It's insane. So, so Roebling rushes there to help extinguish the flames. He's working with compressed air inside the caisson under the river and he gets caisson disease or decompression sickness, what we call the bends. It shatters his health. It renders him unable to visit the site ever again. And like they depict in the show, he begins working out of his house. He works for about two, three years, him and Emily, his wife, who, like they said in the clip, did go to Europe. The both of them went to Europe. They learned how to build bridges. Everything she says there, even learning about the catenary curves. The catenary curve deals with the bending of the ropes, of the suspension of the ropes. If there's like nothing, like their natural slope. And that has to be taken into account with how the suspension holds up the the rods, which keeps the bridge kind of afloat. Suspension bridges are wild. Anyway, so she really does do everything like that. So she becomes essentially an engineer by default. As time goes on, her husband is less and less able to even contribute. They really were working hand in hand. And she really was acting as a point person delivering his plans to the workers. And they were designed together. But then literally for the last 10 years of the project, she's doing all of it by herself. She is the Roebling in charge. And there are some people that know. And like she says in here in 1882, unhappy with the speed of the work and the fact that Washington Roebling was never around. They did try and oust him from the position, but the several people who were in the know lobbied and they were allowed to remain in charge. Washington was allowed to remain in charge. And she finishes She finishes the project. And like she says here, it's kind of lost to history. No one really knows. The bridge opens May 24th, 1883 in advance of the official opening. She carries a rooster as a sign of victory in a carriage, and Emily Roebling is the first one to cross the bridge. So she she does get her own symbolic victory there, rooster in hand. A congressman, Abraham Stevens Hewitt, who was a congressman at the time, he would be elected mayor of New York in 1886. In his dedication speech at the opening of the bridge on May 24th, he says specifically about Emily. It is thus an everlasting monument to the self-sacrificing devotion of woman and of her capacity for that higher education from which she has been too long debarred. The name of Mrs. Emily Warren Roebling will thus be inseparably associated with all that is admirable in human nature and with all that is wonderful in the constructive world of art. That's as much as history would acknowledge her role in this. And it doesn't even begin to really encompass the, the 10 years, the majority of the building time that she literally ran this whole project. It, it's it's fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating part of history. And for Lord Julian Fellows, who has spent the Gilded Age writing these powerful female characters, here comes this one that no one really knows in history. Everyone just thinks John A. Roebling. No one knows about his daughter-in-law who really did the work. That maybe is the entire point of the story.
2: I I mean, and you know what? I appreciate that it's taken um, a, a Brit to point out uh, so much of our own history. <laughs> There's something about that that makes me smile. I have to tell you something that does not make me smile, and actually, really, really burst my heart was when Emily said, "If they found out a woman was the engineer, they may not even walk across it." I, there was something about it. I can't really describe to you how much that like breaks my heart. I, I know it's real, but it's I, I, like I understand that that exists in our world all the time. But as a woman, it just like it. Oh, my God. It really kills me. Like it, like a little small part of my soul actually like explodes and dies when I hear stuff like that, because I'm like, why? My God, why, why, why? And like how how much we've had to go through. Oh, and just moments like that. Again, it's a, it's a one liner. It's so easy to miss in a show like this. And yet it's like it just speaks volumes about where we are societally. She says,
3: I know you must think it's beyond the grasp of a woman to know these things to in order to build such a structure. And I think that's interesting because that line is really echoed in Congressman Stevens' speech, where he says that she is a, a testament to the level of education that women aren't even supposed to be able to get let alone understand or grasp that's where we are that's real i mean that's literally pulled from history that is a real speech that was really given and really said out loud that the show echoes here
2: There was another part when she said, it. I'm not going to say it verbatim, but, but the sentiment that where she actually kind of downplays herself to Larry and says like, and like, kind of like, inexplicably, I understood it. Like, it was sort of like a, like she was trying to downplay, like, like, I know it's like miraculous that
5: like a woman could understand. No,
2: I do. I do. I do. But she had to do that.
3: Right, right.
2: She had to do that. She had to say, I'm silly old dithering me. I could still figure it out. And I was like, oh, my God, like the whole thing.
3: Uh, completely aside and not related to anything, if anyone on the show is listening, anyone in the props department, I would really, 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 really like the half model of the Brooklyn Bridge Tower <laughs> that they had in that scene. Man, I was watching it and I literally a little drool came out of my mouth. I really oh want gosh. that. I really want that for my collection <laughs> in the worst way possible.
2: Wow. So
3: I don't know who we have to talk to. I, 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 we have to we have to make that happen. I need that in my home.
2: Okay, we'll put it in the universe. So an interesting
3: question that gets made explicit here is how, I mean, this is, we're in 1883. This project has been being built since 69 with Roebling men dying left and right. uh, Or, well, here's the cruel thing. Washington Roebling, bedridden, spending his time in Newport, not doing this work. He actually ends up outliving Emily by 23 years. How is that for an ironic, cruel twist of fate? This man who was unable to do much once the the bends really took hold of him and it's rumored he had other Ill, other ailments on top of it but this was the one that gets talked about the most the decompression sickness he ends up out living her by 23 years. What could she maybe have accomplished if she had li- lived past, I think it's 1903 she passes away, or 1905, something like that. No trustee had ever come to the house. So I know we're giving Larry credit in this episode for sussing it out and for, I mean, yeah. he has that great line, is this where Mr. Roebling works? And she she looks at him and thinks, yeah. and she says, this is where the work is done. Yes.
2: Yep. Really <laughs> smart. Really clever.
3: But it's yep. George who says it. It's George's idea to go suss out at the house. How come no trustee had ever gone there? This is 14 Years this project is in the works. Ten years of her doing it by herself without Mr. Robling and no one's seen him. No one ever thought let's go to the house or I, I it's just George upsetting the apple cart again. Everyone was really kind of willing to like look the other way. But I like he says go beard him in his den, which is a weird phrase. Um, <laughs> but George who can't uh, Larry who can't grow a beard himself goes and beards him and guesses it. So what do we think here? Is Larry going to be a secret ally of Mrs. Robling, giving her cover? In the final month or months, however long we are in the show before May 24th comes along.
2: Oh, gosh, you think we're sticking with this story? I didn't think we were sticking with this story. I just kind of figured that this was a way to get Larry involved in George's business, but that he's going to probably get some next assignment.
3: Maybe, maybe, but the bridge isn't open yet and there are still, I mean, they still are making designs and there's still stuff to be done with this bridge. So maybe yeah, this is the one and done to introduce us to this history and to put Larry back together with George. But maybe he's going to stick with it because it does, it does scratch his architecture slash engineering itch. One little fact I noticed about the show, and I just want to give this a hat tip. This is some New York geography. The Roeblings... Washington Emily lived in Columbia Heights, which is in just south of the promenade in Brooklyn Heights. The Brooklyn Heights area where they lived is south of the Brooklyn Bridge. So when Larry is entering the house and he turns around and sees the bridge kind of through the trees, that is really actually the angle from which that house would have been seen. And in his days when he was still working on it, but couldn't go to the site and so was working from his home, it is said that Washington Roebling used a telescope to look at the bridge from his house. And that was like how he would observe work being done there. Nice little faithfulness to the to the details.
2: Yeah, I just so what I see is maybe, you know, being a part of the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, but I just don't see it's like the Edison thing. We talked about it a little bit, then we attended it, but that's it. We're not going to like sit in it. And I don't think there's anything. Lord Fellows has not sat in any of these things. Like we hit it and we hit it. We learn about it. We move on. So I don't think this is a new project. I think this was just an interesting stop on the history train. But I don't see us staying here.
3: Mr. Tate's point about the not going to the dedication ceremony actually proved true. They did have a opening reception at the Roebling house. And Mr. Roebling did not, in fact, go to the opening, Emily, as we said was the first to cross the bridge and was on hand. But uh, they really did just hold a reception for him at the house for them to celebrate. So curious, maybe maybe George and Larry will go attend at the Roebling house for, and that'll be the only other time we hear about it. Curious, though, I don't know what they're going to do with Larry. We have three hours left with him, six, seven, and eight, right? What what are they going to do with Larry? Is it going to be love-focused? Is it going to be career-focused?
2: I'm smelling folding him into the George Russell Empire I I see him starting to become groomed to take over the next phase of what George is doing and I can definitely see that you know he's been burned by love now a little bit he's he's gotten a little bit more uh thicker skin I think he sees that his mom does see the world a little bit more correctly than he thought I I kind of see him falling in line a little bit here and, and maybe because of Marion across the street you know we thought he was going to be out of pocket in Newport the whole summer but turns out no so i think i think we got a lot going on here for larry
3: let's spin it out maybe he does get involved in george's business in a more significant way let's check in with george and clay as they take the uh train the uh new york new haven and hartford line up to
1: newport i suppose you've heard of johan most the german anarchist Anarchist and man of violence. He likes to celebrate the murder of the Russian emperor. He preaches sanitary and violence to bring political change. What about him? He's been in Pittsburgh. His agents are still there, poisoning the minds of your workers. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised after the Labor Day march last year. And the message is simple. If you want revolution, you must take up your weapons and use them. Is Henderson convinced, I wonder? The leaders go where the workers take them and their demands keep getting louder. Constant chance of 888. What's that? Eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of what you will. It's the what you will that's proving the sticking point. Would it be so terrible for them to have some time with their families? Yes, it would be terrible because it would lead first to lower profits and finally to ruin, violence, bloodshed, and death. Please don't hold back on my account. I mean it. Any concession now could only spell weakness. Weakness is the harbinger of chaos. One
3: blink and you'll lose the war. Okay, so a lot of interesting things there. And again, more table setting for the George storyline. This is like the third episode in a row now where we've had table setting for what is coming in Pittsburgh.
2: And the combination of Clay's voice and the railroad, uh, like chugga, 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 chugga. I was like lulling off. I was like, whoa, this is like hypnotic.
3: It's the, uh, why do we build the
2: wall, my children? We're on the railroad now. (laughs) Hey, I got a pretty deep voice there. Did you hear that?
3: I was, I was digging. That it.
2: was pretty good. I, I, I thought was Patrick
3: like, Page had actually popped I was into like, our oh, chat. I am
2: Patrick Page. I don't know why I also have to get like a little ghouly. Like I'm like a haunted guy. He's a
3: little ghouly. His voice is a little ghouly. I mean, when he's deep in his baritone. <laughs> a little ghouly. When he, I mean, he, everything, he doesn't, There, he, he's not like a candy striper. They're, Patrick Page is not like singing, <laughs> like like delivering flowers and singing shanties at the door. Like he's, wow, he,
2: that's weird. All those things that you said was so weird a candy striper who delivers flowers at your shanty <laughs> i
3: was i was thinking of clue with the candy striper who gets shot at the door i was she's thinking of petra
2: telegram pa- she's, she's singing a,
3: telegram yes yeah, petra page doesn't says, do singing telegram stuff she, yeah yeah you know, that's like,
2: funny oh, why did you say candy happy striper because
3: do be, i don't know i don't know
2: <laughs> happy birthday to it. you
3: a happy really birthday. So I'm blessed. a little ghouly. Even when
2: I'm I loved it. Birthdays. I loved actually seeing a train outside of the um, opening credits. For whatever reason, that was like kind of like invigorating. It was like back to business, you know?
3: It, it's actually, it's a real well, rail line. The New York, New Haven and Hartford Rail Line It was known as the consolidated or simply as the New Haven. It uh, it actually dominated the entire southern New England area for the first half of the 20th century. Um, and this and this specific line ran from 1872 to December 31st,
1: Nineteen
3: sixty-eight. Hmm. So uh, this uh, this train line that they are on, the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, real deal. So anyway, so they're going on their way up to Promontide. So th- this this was interesting for table sitting for two reasons. One, you see George being the George that we all want him to be. Would it be so bad? Eight hours to spend with their families. That's uh, this is this is. Henderson getting to him, talking about their lives currently aren't it aren't a life. It's just an existence. They work and they sleep and then they work again. So the eight 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 hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours to do what you will real battle cry that was that was actually a real rallying cry even before 1883 that starts in like 1882 as part of the eight-hour workday the eight-hour workday was a real linchpin in all of the railroading union strikes at this time trying to get an eight-hour workday but the eight hours of what you will was an actual song and i'm gonna try very hard to find a clip of it for our next episode there is an 888 song that goes through you know eight hours of work eight hours of sleep eight hours of what you will so the <laughs> no. way you Will is like in was like in the, was like one of the lyrics in the song. <laughs> So you have Larry softening his stance already, right? The fact that he says it out loud to Clay, I think, already indicates that he is softening to this. But Clay's response, I think, is going to be everyone else around Larry's response. That if we blink, the war is already lost. There is a real violent clash that actually happens in 1886. It's called the Haymarket Square Riots, or Haymarket Square Massacre, depending on uh, how you want to say it, that happens in Chicago and it happens following a union rally I have a feeling the show is building towards a Haymarket Square stand-in but happening in Pittsburgh with the steel workers on one side and the militia the the National Guard if you will uh, Pennsylvania National Guard and scabs on the other why is this interesting it's interesting because of the history and how they're going to play it out there is no really well-known 1883 strike of labor that I could find that happens in Pittsburgh the Haymarket Square Square is just dramatic enough, but it's still three years off. But it would be interesting if they did something like that here. So that's where I feel like we're coming. And with with Clay's blood, you know, ruin, violence, death, you know, it just it, it seems inevitable that this is going to turn bloody. What, what, what kind of guilt would George have or Bertha never be able to forgive him if Larry is somehow hurt getting mixed up in George's business with this on the horizon? Especially since Bertha keeps telling George not to worry about Pittsburgh. This is the second episode in a row where she keeps telling him Pittsburgh can wait. Pittsburgh can wait. I don't think Pittsburgh can wait. Pittsburgh is a powder cake that is about to fucking explode. Bertha is certainly not taking it seriously enough, and George may only start to be taking it seriously enough.
2: I did not consider that Larry could get injured, but that makes a lot of sense that somehow he's put in harm's way and, and is, you know, having to do with the Russell business. I, I really want him to stay in the Russell business, though, so I really don't want him to be run out. I, maybe a twist on this could be he could get hurt, but maybe Maybe what if he's also like ends up being like the linchpin for something good to happen? Maybe it won't be that he gets hurt, but maybe somehow he brings a new idea to the table or somehow, you know, a younger voice speaks to the to younger workers better or something like that, where he brings something good to the table and he actually helps.
3: The other thing with the Haymarket Square violence aspect of it is that Johann Moss, most that they're talking about in the clip, he was a real German anarchist uh, turned terrorist and, and revolutionary who actually supplied explosives for the Haymarket Square riot. And he did emigrate from Germany to the United States in 1882 and took up with the German workers who were among the steel workers in Chicago and this part of Pittsburgh and in Ohio in those steel mills. And he agitated among them that violence was the way to get their, their voices heard. And he was actually the labor unrest, the growing labor unrest in in the United States that drew him from Germany where he had a lot of heat on him to the United States. So Johan most very real figure who does actually in fact then play into the Haymarket Square riot a couple of years later. So again it, I feel like it's all coming together for something explosive and why have something explosive if one of our characters is not going to be put into harm's way or potentially being put, put into harm's way. So yeah. I, again I'm spinning it out. We only have three hours left. I don't know how much they can actually do but we have been setting the table for Pittsburgh now for three episodes at least. Something has to happen before the end of the season there i'm pretty sure
2: they are not going to shy away from some big happening because this is i feel like we've been jumping from big happening to big happening to big happening this season so i yeah no we're definitely going to pittsburgh and you're right things are going to get crazy i mean if you just watch scenes for next week and they're all like violence like (laughs) it's the whole memes of like i woke up and chose violence like they definitely are
3: That Labor Day March of 1882 that George mentions in that clip I just played, by the way, just again for a little historical fact, the first Labor Day, it it really created the idea of what we know as Labor Day in the United States. It was actually a labor march uh, that happened on Tuesday, September 5th, 1882 in New York City. It was sponsored by the Central Labor Union, which was a consortium of labor unions at the time, and it drew... According to local newspapers, 10,000 to 20,000 workers from various trade organizations participated in the parade, including unions representing jewelers, painters, dock builders, cigar makers and and typographers. So it was actually the very first Labor Day celebration, which is celebrated now on the first Monday of September every year. This is a fertile time in American history because it really is in the midst of the Industrial Revolution in the United States.
2: I don't know why we did not spend a lot more time on this period in history in our history. History classes. I don't feel like we did spend nearly enough. Hasn't time. Has not age
3: great. That's why because I guess, be, yeah. when you look at it through a critical eye, it was a lot of people that we don't consider to be heroes today that were very much the leaders of society then. And I think I that's would still why. Just
2: like to know the story, you know, even without any judgment, just 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 know all the stories. I wish that we had learned more about it.
3: Well. We're going to learn all about the Duke Y'all of Buckingham. now. And, and, well, you're going to learn it through me and through our Facebook page while I put up more information about all of this stuff. Um, I, I owe a big brain dump from the first five episodes on Facebook, so I've, I've been neglecting adding history there, but I will. Let's talk about Bertha and Gladys. Gladys, how do you solve a problem like Gladys? I... She she just doesn't seem to be getting what's happening here. Are you surprised that Bertha wasn't more explicitly prepping her for her time with the Duke? Because she was outright rude to him at best.
2: Well, I can't be surprised because we've discussed this a couple of different times where we're like, I don't really understand how much training, proper training that Gladys has been given in terms of what are the expectations for her being a part of any sort of courting situation. She doesn't seem to know what role she plays. So I can't be surprised because we've already commented that Bertha doesn't seem to actually be filling in the blanks for her. So she doesn't seem to know what's going on. But my goodness, why she didn't put it together on her own when she was sat next to the Duke that like, hello, I mean, you need to be polite and and better than that, right? You need to be darn right intriguing and interesting during this entire meal. She was very checked out. I I, Do you think that there going to give us any kind of reason why she was so checked out? I,
3: I don't know, but even before the dinner part, where, okay, maybe she doesn't get that, and she says, I thought I was sitting with the younger set, and she says, no, no, you're sitting next to the Duke. Even if she doesn't get it there, just basic manners. You are you are the daughter of the Russells in this giant room. A royal Duke has come to your house for an event that you're throwing in his honor. They say hello, and then she literally goes off to Mammy Fish. Let let's put Let's put courting aside, and And you are a debutante for the purpose of getting married in this world. Just basic manners as as your parents having friends over for dinner – I would lose my mind. I would absolutely lose my mind if my child acted this way.
2: I agree. It, it was very out of character for her because she's usually very excited about parties and get togethers and getting to see other people. And all this. so she seemed she had like a like an exhaustion about her. Like she was just very over all of this. And I, I didn't know exactly know where that was coming from. I know that she said, you know, I'm ready to start picking out my own clothes. I'm ready to like basically have more of a say. Bertha was like harsh as hell with the you'd pick the clothes, but not the right clothes. I was like, ah oh yeah. You yeah, all of that super teenage plus mom talk like that's all those interactions. Like, I think you just lame. Yeah, well, you just lame. <laughs>
3: Great use of the Bertha mantra, though. Trust me, it's 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 how Bertha. It's what her tombstone's going to read. Trust me with exclamation point.
2: So then maybe maybe she's being put off and and acting just sort of about this whole thing because she did have a little bit of back and forth with her mom. I wouldn't have chalked that up to being like in any kind of tiff with her, but maybe maybe. There was more there that either got was on the editing room floor that we didn't get, that they were in more of an argument than I was really. I mean, I didn't see that as a big old argument, but she acted like she had a chip on her shoulder when she came downstairs and she was later than everybody else joining the party. There was something there that maybe, you know, I'm I'm downplaying too much that she just didn't really want to be there and didn't care to be there.
3: Still, though, you have to suck it up. Just, again, just basic yeah, manners wise, even even if you're not about the being of the courting. I mean, and then she continues at the dinner. Do any of us really ever make our own life? Which the Duke was like, whoa, that is too deep. And I haven't even <laughs> had my fucking deviled kidneys. Oh, which aren't even being served. <laughs> they took deviled kidneys off of the, off of the menu. Super gross. Uh, I did think it was funny, especially you were talking before about how women of this age needed someone tying them up and need some, they literally needed help getting into their dresses
2: wait wait that's not what i said (laughs) you just said women of these days needed help getting tied up (laughs) They needed help getting dressed.
3: Yes. Right, right, right. But there was a fun detail though, because Adelheid, when when Gladys and her mother are talking, and she's being called, you know, girlish and uh, but yeah. fussy and girlish in her blue dress, she keeps spinning around and and squirming. Adelheid just dutifully continues to tie up her her undergarment, mm-hmm. and it's just funny. She she's just like a she's focused, and she just keeps tying up as as Gladys turns and squirms and stuff. Adelheid just keeps at it, making. Her little knots and bows. It, I don't know. It just made me laugh. I was like, she is so committed to it. Where someone like else would have been like, stand still, <laughs> or exactly. I will continue tying this when you stop moving. But no, nope, right. Al You know, she knows her job is on like thin ice. <laughs> what do you think about that conversation of uh, between Mrs. Bruce and and Bertha, and maybe not so much Bertha because it's Bertha's house, but Mrs. Bruce kind of letting Al f- find out she's literally being replaced from the major leagues. You know, as far as a ladies' mate go, I think getting to do a tiara for a dinner for a duke seems to be like getting called up to the bigs and she finds out by eavesdropping that she's been replaced. That didn't feel so good to me.
2: Oh, no. I think it would be awful. But, but, what she said as the reasoning that this is a special occasion, and so that's why we're having, like, a special hairdresser lady, that's actually very legit. Because I have, like, a standard hairdresser that does my hair, like, every six weeks or whatever. But then I have, like, people who I would call upon if I was going to a wedding or if I was going to, you know, something big that I wanted to look specific for. I wouldn't go to my everyday hairdresser. So I actually do do not think it was as big as slight as Adelheid was like sort of feeling it, but because it's it is it is true that you would hire someone else. But please, the writing on that about her tiara skills lacking that her that her tiara skills were limited. Um, I think we should be using that all the time. If, if you feel like anyone does not have the skill set, their tiara skills are limited. <laughs> Very delicious writing. That was excellent. She's
3: got the sickest burns. I mean, Agnes definitely has the ones that make me (laughs) snort laugh. But really, Bertha and Mrs. Astor, that we can get to see her in this episode, uh, just really cut so deep. Like, they go right down to the bone in in the most unexpected ways. It's really fun to watch. (laughs) You know, you, you mentioned about, you know, Gladys entertaining the Duke. You know, Ward leans over and says, hopefully the Duke finds Gladys entertaining. I think the way this played out, it was really more about... Gladys finding the Duke entertaining because remember Daddy George is watching all of this he is across watching his wife the Duke and Gladys one two three with a roar sitting next to him chirping in his ear and he says I assume you know I think Bertha knows what she's doing but he he's remember still on the love match so even if the Duke is the go he's gonna need to see Gladys is entertained by the Duke and not just what Ward's concern is that the Duke is entertained by Gladys which she did not seem entertained by him. At no point did she seem to really come around to him.
2: Do you think he just seems too old for her? I think she's petulant I, because I, I, okay. I, I, I think
3: he's actually perfectly nice and he is royalty. And if she thinks she's getting someone young who has the money and or the power, she really doesn't get what's happening here.
2: <laughs> that's that, That's probably the uh, the biggest mouthful ever. She doesn't get what's going if
3: on. If Oscar Van Ryan was a fraction more wealthy, she'd be marrying Oscar Van Ryan right now. If Mr. Winterton, you know, was even a just. A little bit younger, she may be marrying Mr. Winter.
2: Job? Do you really think that? Because that, come on, do you really think that that's what that's what George and Bertha are doing?
3: I don't think it's what George is doing. But George and Bertha have different aims here, which is something that we really haven't discussed because it hasn't come to a head because it hasn't come to a head yet. But it's going to come to a head where Bertha is going to insist she marries someone that she doesn't love. And George made a vow to his daughter. I will stand up for you against your mother and fight for you to have a love match. That sounds great on paper. And it sounds great when he's saying it to just Gladys. That's going to hit like a fucking ton of bricks when he goes to say that to Bertha, though
2: well and we we haven't had the moment where we've tried to figure out what Bertha exactly has to have i mean with agnes it was it's very formulaic bertha i'm i'm not as sure that i 100% know what exactly she wants i mean there's money but there's also status i think there's also probably like power to pull strings and stuff like that i think there's other things that she is looking at as well um but and it, it's not been verbalized. So I, you know, like we need like a George and Bertha conversation a little bit more about what it is they're trying to do for their kids and what's coming next because we're getting, not on the
3: same page. They are not on the same page. At least at not
2: for us, for the audience. I mean, maybe they're having loads of conversations behind the scenes, but not in front of us
3: how sexy when she extends her hand and says george
2: oh shut ah, up that was so awesome when ah, she started to walk away though i couldn't understand why she was walking away that was like when she was like i'm going to bed and she didn't kiss him or anything then i knew that was coming because she didn't kiss him good night she didn't say anything so i was like oh what are you gonna pull here girl and then she's all like come on i was like oh my
3: Uh, she says right before that we're on our way indeed he's helping her take her jewels
2: off yeah and uh that's the best part of the night, George. Isn't that your most favorite part? Is like, that's my most favorite part is when I get to kick off my heels and like take off the jewelry, start like unpinning my hair. That's like my most favorite part.
3: (laughs) I'm literally taking my pants off the second I'm in the door. Like, I cannot wait to get unchanged. (laughs) (laughs) My jeans literally are sitting over the chair nearest to my front door right now as we speak.
2: Oh, my God.
3: We have Gladys being rude. The dinner gets underway. And we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. The dinner was just headlines of things we are supposed to get out of this. But we really didn't get into anything in depth. There's only so much we could talk about. But, I mean, we do have to talk about Enid Winterton and her plan to thwart the dinner. She's trying to spoil the soup and the salad sauces at the chef level. And then I guess footman Peter was going to dump soup in the Duke's lap.
2: That's what I'm gathering. Yeah, that's what was because there was
3: making jokes about it uh, it being hot. So I guess Mm -hmm. he was going to get hot, hot soup or whatever it was in in his lap. But uh, Bannister swoops in.
2: I thought that the mystery unraveled really fast. I mean, Watson picked up in one second what was happening with Schneider. And that was quickly dealt with and then he immediately picked up on what was going on with peter and put it all together for anybody who wasn't paying attention he's like you know the chef snyder works part-time for winterton and we all know peter barnes has kept up with with mrs winterton so it was like wait 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 that was it was so fast enid's plan was so like flimsy and sad and really just fell right apart I, i mean i was shocked were you surprised at how quick though how it just fell apart
3: I was saying that I had been really pleased with the pacing so far that it was moving at a clip, but a, at a clip where I felt like they weren't rushing through anything that I wanted to see. This was too fast. This dinner needed, I think, 10 minutes more in the episode, honestly. 10 minutes of like actual screen time to see it unfurl and and just get the spectacle of it all. And along with that is the dinner sabotage part of it. It makes sense that Peter is on everyone's suspicious head, uh, suspicious radar, because is he outed himself as being a confidant to Enid. Turner, Winterton, whatever you want to call her, and, you know, he saw Schneider do a thing, so okay, but why was the valet in the kitchen anyway, watching so closely? He wasn't on duty to act as an extra footman or an underbutler at the service, he was just hanging out downstairs, so I think maybe you hit the nail on the head, and this gets me to the larger point about Enid and her plan, it was flimsy, it was Petty. It's
2: like juvenile and like just silly. Like really you're going to spill soup in someone's lap? First of all, I think all that would accomplish with that Peter would be fired. I don't even know why he'd be willing to do that. You know, because right. I mean, and, who's and in work trouble? Again. Right. right? Who right. would be in trouble there? You spilled hot soup on the Duke and on Duke from England. Are you kidding me? You best just like move to Kansas. Go find out where where Chef Bourdain used to live because you need to leave.
3: I I think it would have been mortifying for Bertha.
2: Of course.
3: Socially, these people seem so uppity with their their rules that, you know, maybe it does even ruin the night. I mean, obviously, the Duke would have to leave the room and everyone would just stares awkwardly at each other. I mean, Gladys maybe would be happy, but everyone else would just be awkward sitting in silence and staring at Bertha. But, yeah, Peter would have ruined his footman career or whatever. But I guess he could have gone out work for. Winterton. I'm sure they're sleeping together. If that hasn't come out yet, it will. They're too familiar with each other. Or at least I got the impression if they're not now, maybe they were when she was employed at the Russell House. But either way, I think the point was it was flimsy that this is just another level on which. Enid can't compete with Bertha in the same way she was being petulant when the Duke arrived and uh, talking about, I think it's Aurora asks him what he thinks of Newport. He says, well, if it's Bertha's Newport then I'm sure it's going to be amazing and she comes in, no one's talking to her or her husband. She walks in, Enid does and says, as compared to the Winterton's Newport like, dude, way to make it awkward what are you even, what are you accomplishing here? He didn't want to stay with you
2: Yeah, it was so awkward. That was so awkward. But but, I mean, just it highlights her... Being like in the wrong place, like right, right, I don't understand exactly. why she would do this. Right, you know? everything,
3: everything she did this evening, uh, from from her planning through her actual opening her mouth and speaking, just exposed her as not being on this level. She can't play at this level. Not not even close. All she is is all she's doing is embarrassing her husband, who had to pay the price because he tried to clarify what his wife said, and Bertha just steamrolled him by by introducing gladys i felt so bad for mr winterton that poor old man just wants to enjoy his meal and and not be ostracized
2: yeah but unfortunately he made a a yes. sad error in judgment and marrying old enid and uh you know what when you think with that part of your body unfortunately you get yourself into spots where you, get, you end up being embarrassed and feel like a fool Preach, sister.
3: Preach. Just saying. I, I have to ask this question now. I mean, maybe calls out Enid for looking agitated. I mean, she looks like she swallowed her tongue when <laughs> Bannister foils Peter's plan. And the, and the first is I mean, it, it's very actually funny. We didn't talk about it. But when the Duke compliments the truffles that are being served and what a delightful way to start, Bertha has to cover really quickly and say, what did she say? She said something like, uh, like,
2: oh, yeah, I forgot that was going to be our first one or something like that. No? <laughs> (laughs) Bertha
3: forgot the first course in this episode alone of all the precious time allotted for this storyline. We saw her talking about the menu three times, I believe. She definitely forgot the first course, right? So, you know, (laughs) she's covering, I mean, the way her eyes bugged out of her head and even George's eyes when Bannister came for service and and served the Duke instead of the footman. I mean, they're covering and obviously off screen, I guess, there are going to be questions to ask on like what the actual fuck happened. But if she's covering because that's how Bertha rolls. That's the level of Bertha rolls. Enid would have been like, what are you doing? <laughs> screech owl, screech owl, screech owl. So they're there, right there is the difference. I feel like, and I hope this is the end, of the Enid Turner Winterton storyline, let her her embarrassment here be done with it, and let's move Bertha back to competition that is worthy of her. Let's get her back going head to head with Missus Astor, who took a chance by not coming to this dinner in, in perhaps missing the event of the season. That seemed to be where Ward, Mamie, and Aurora were all coming from.
2: Hmm. Okay, so I do not think this is the end of Enid. I wish it was, but I do not think it is. I am trying to think about the different tactics that we've seen used. And one of those tactics is, if you feel you cannot beat someone, take credit for them. Right, Mrs. Astor taught us that.
3: Mm-hmm. So ward, I ward, yeah. You know?
2: Uh huh. So I am looking at the Winterton situation and thinking, all right, we've got the Met on the table, right? We've got this situation. I I I know nothing other than you know the other the couple clips that we've seen um, for like scenes for next week, but it smells to me like Enid is going to stick her nose into the the Met situation and somehow start to try to take some credit with the new crowd. This is what I am predicting to happen because that would be a way to get at Bertha in a completely different way. I think she loses on this like servant to servant, whatever nonsense she's doing. Like this kind of stuff, she, she cannot win. But on some sort of bigger level, money-wise, I mean, she's got to get it, – it goes back to the money. So is there something she can do with the money? I don't know what. I don't know if the Met needs more money current. Again, she does need to sell boxes. And, and Winterton has said they would not take a box, but now they lost their box at the Academy. So surely they will take a box. Well,
3: remember, his parting shot to Mrs. Astor last week was, you know, this will force us to take a box at the Met. And Mrs. Astor right. said, that's probably more your wife's speed.
2: Oof. So but so then I know. So then here's the thing. So when we're talking about what is her next move, her next move is to win over and or be the, you know, belle of the ball at the Met. Which would really take the wind out of Bertha's sails. So this is this is what I see as like her next move, taking credit for something that Bertha's been working on forever. It's just so beneath
3: Bertha. This is (laughs) this is that we had our fun with the exposing of the George and the division and strife that that caused. She was firmly you know, schooled in this episode when when the downstairs staff were able to foil it completely like the Scooby-Doo gang without even Bertha or George knowing or being aware. Well, what do we actually hope to accomplish here? But you're right. I mean, she, she I mean, the, for the same reason Bertha needed to court the Wintertons to begin with, you know, he's old money, but she's young and ambitious, so open to the new money. And now, having lost their box at the Academy, they kind of have to go to the Met. Uh, you're right. Uh, but I hope, I hope at least the focus is less on them anyway. I'm tired with it, I guess is my point.
2: Well, one of the things that I was very grateful for with the staff situation was that if things were going to be figured out relatively quickly, I was glad that everyone. believed everybody else and acted accordingly so the second that watson said i think something's going on we did not have the three's company nonsense crap of like are you sure what are you talking about none of that they they took him at his word they immediately acted and the second he saw the next thing with peter he immediately said something they immediately acted like I need that amount of conciseness if we're going to deal with this level of pettiness.
3: It's also a credit to the Russell household. These are the kinds of people that Bertha and George would employ competent, good at their job. people. I love seeing people on screen be good at their job in, in real life, too. I love when people are good at their job, no matter what their job is. It makes me happy watching these guys be the Scooby-Doo gang and figure it out, working together, not questioning, not hemming and hawing, just getting to it and springing into action. Uh, you know, Chef Josh. All right. First course is canceled. We're switching it up. Boom. Ready to go. He's ready for the contingency without even realizing he's ready for the contingency. Uh, he's sweeping in and, and stopping Peter before he serves the Duke boom just be good at your job I love that a credit to Bertha and George
2: uh, very much so I I really I, I agree with you and and there's like something that's actually like extremely satisfying when like when the pieces just fit together when it's like this guy's doing this I hear you I'll move it's like oh I just love it when things are like efficient and and just they just took care of it so quickly you're right total credit to Bertha
3: I wish that we had more time or more things to talk about with this dinner, but we really didn't. It ends with a cheers to Bertha, a leading citizen. Again, again just the highlights, and which all speak for themselves, so we don't really have to go into it. I don't think there's really much deeper than what we talked about. I do want to talk about Watson. We, we drop in on a conversation of Watson and George, clearly Watson having just told George about Robert McNeil's offer to go to San Francisco.
2: How shocked were you that Watson was having this very personal conversation with his employer? I was not shocked. I was really thrown. I thought that that would be the type of thing where you have to like ask for an appointment and like go and sit with him and like talk with him. But like just while you're dressing him, I didn't think you would ever speak of such personal things.
3: I make you a bet if we saw that conversation from the beginning, I make you a bet. George is actually the one who even probably brings it up. I think he was very perplexed and a little annoyed that McNeil didn't tell him why uh, he was looking for Watson when he came to okay. his house. I see and I think, think I make mean, George is the kind of guy who doesn't like those kinds of loose threads. I make you bet he's been waiting for a moment in, you know, they're up in Newport. It's, it's probably more relaxed than things. His mind is swirling with Pittsburgh. So he's probably looking for something to distract himself. I make you bet he's been looking for a chance to talk to and ask Watson what that was all about. So
2: That makes complete sense. It, it just, it seemed very like there was something wrong with the formality level of the whole thing. Like, it was like, can he really just talk so casually to George like that? Because, I mean, I guess we've seen conversations with like Armstrong and Agnes and they would have an even more formal relationship and they were just talking like casually. So right. there's I something mean, very intimate. I think,
3: I think these these bedroom dressing conversations can become intimate. I, not to be whatever about Downton, Downton Abbey. We saw the same thing in Downton Abbey too when the valets or... Or the ladies' maids were dressing their respective heads. You know, people in the family. Oftentimes, their conversations got very personal, especially on the servants' end, where the the person being dressed would ask, you know, go deeper into their their questions about their family life or things that were going on. So, real or not, this is this is consistent with what we've seen, and like you said, with Agnes and uh, with Armstrong also. Now knowing Watson's story, because it sounds like Watson must have laid out his entire story for George, which maybe he never went into previously. I wonder if George will see Watson as more of an equal than than a valet, given knowing his history. George seems like the kind of guy who respects that uh, the person more than the station, if that makes sense. Okay, uh, so he may have he may be genuinely interested in in this man who dresses him who had this whole other life he didn't know about. I was particularly just very happy that George had the reaction we would want him to. Have. George really made me happy this whole episode. I liked his rea- I liked his reaction on the train with Clay, and I liked his reaction here that he agreed with us and with Watson that it, it seems perfectly reasonable to want to hear from from Flora from his daughter herself before he banished. Himself across the you know the other side of the country, he could have easily had just said, "Don't make trouble for us, for Bertha, for anyone." These are people we have to do business with. I'm glad that he didn't take that tact because Watson would have been hard pressed to disobey him had he laid the hammer down. Don't you think?
2: Yes, yes. Watson would needed to do whatever he said to do. I mean, I I think the conversation was much more peer like than I expected, and and I really think that there was a lot of respectful, you know, sort of advice, and then sort of and I I don't want to say like pushback, but I but but like it's not like he had to do exactly what George said. You know, it's like they could just go back and forth and be like, well, what do you think about this? Well, I'll, this is what I think. Like it was all right to talk that way. The whole conversation I think was very necessary, and we we got a sense of where Watson is in this process and and he's being backed by other dads who are saying like yeah this doesn't this isn't great you know
3: other dads one of which is a, a very powerful man it, right. it's, it's one thing to have say Ban- or a church in your corner it's another thing altogether to have George in your corner because again George is the kind of guy who may go around Watson altogether and go to McNeil to interfere that way George is totally the kind of guy who would, who would call up Robert summon him to his office and say something like, if you want, you know, my company to do banking with you, then you need to set your wife and my valet together and have them talk. He seems very much like the type of guy who would do that and not even really think about it too much. George is, George is much more concerned with the emotional matters of people than I think would be obvious or that you would assume, or maybe even more so than Bertha altogether.
2: I would say I give them a lot of credit. There's a kind of like that joke that goes around TikTok and stuff like that where they put like a microphone in front of a dad's face and be like, "What's the name of your of your kids friends?" or like, "What's the what's what's their birthday?" or that type of thing. And dads like rarely know on these videos. I don't know why, but George, I feel really comfortable that he would know his his kids' friends' names, and he would know when their birthdays are, and he would know what's going on, which which is a level of being engaged in like the household stuff and the in the family stuff that is probably highly unusual at this at this stage of the game societally. This dad is I, I've always appreciated that about George, and I think that's what. Most people appreciate about the George and Bertha dynamic is that, yes, they're a powerful couple, but they're parents and they do parent and we see them parent.
3: Isn't it funny that the Fanes don't have kids? When I was going through my whole shtick earlier and I was in my own notes about how I'd watch a spinoff with them and everything, I realized I think they're the most actual functional couple on the show.
2: Interesting. Even more so
3: than Bertha and George, because we've seen that there's a stress fracture between Bertha and George, because I don't think Aurora and Charles are as ambitious as Bertha and George. They're not going to have the same, you know, interest coming to loggerheads because neither of them seem to be particularly ambitious beyond where they are actually at, but doesn't seem like they have children it's weird to me. They're they're both of the age where you would think they would have children, and I and there are a lot of couples. I, I do the fishes. Does does Mamie have kids? Her and Stuyvesant Fish. I we've never seen They've them. They've not
2: talked about them. No.
3: I mean, clear I word. McAllister sure doesn't. I mean, wh- I mean they
2: may have grown children. They may. I mean, because because Bertha and George, I think we're supposed to think are a little bit younger than say like Mamie Fish, and so like her kids could be like thirty, you know, and have like kids of their own and stuff like that.
3: Just in a world where having kids seems to be such a part of duty and obligation to say nothing of whether or not you want children, if the whole idea is to protect your money and fortune into the next generation, you have to have a next generation in order to do that. There should be more kids. There should be more people Larry and Gladys' age and Marion's age and the show, it would seem to me.
2: There is something about the pool does seem so shallow. You know, there just doesn't seem to be that many people. I mean, hello, we're having to like bring people in from England, possible suitors. That's kind of implying that the pool is not very deep here. So I don't know. And and maybe it doesn't make sense then to bring in a bunch of younger people because if we're trying to kind of be like, this is hard and and it's like slim pickings, you really got to go through it, then it would be weird then if we saw bunches and bunches of kids. You know,
3: You, you remind me of another issue with Aided Winterton's whole plan and her whole storyline and 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 as it relates to the Duke the Duke isn't here because he just wants to hang out with American money the Duke is here because he wants to marry a wealthy daughter that will inject money into his power structure that's the entire point of the dollar princess's program mm-hmm. you know to the extent that it, to the extent that it was a program not rich royalty coming to America to mate up with rich families so that They could combine power, prestige, and wealth. Enid doesn't have children, and Enid and Mister. Winterton don't have children to marry them off. Why on earth would he want to stay with them? They offer him not—they literally offer him nothing that he's looking for. He's looking for a Gladys or a Carrie Astor or a Marion, and not that they've met, but he—that's who he's looking for. He's looking for women of that age that he can marry and have children with.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would have made better sense for Enid to try to like i think she wants to be with the duke so then it's like huh like what how are you going to do this Lena did not think it through i it's it's one thing to get married but then everything she's trying to do now seems like shouldn't aren't you at your goal you married wealth. What What are you doing at this point? Like, you have all the money. You can just enjoy yourself.
3: Unless she's trying to do a Susan Blaine. But remember, Susan Blaine had, a, had to suffer through 20 years of the old husband. That's right. that's and a I, cautionary I only, tale.
2: Well, and I only gather that it was after he died that she was playing around. Did, did you? So
3: No, no. That's what I'm saying. She had to put in 20 years before she was able to have her cake and eat it, too. Or right. tried to. And that even didn't work out. So.
2: Right. So, so strange. It's I don't know. It's very strange.
3: It's very strange. I want also, uh, uh, all these things are coming back to me that I didn't bring oh. up before.
2: <laughs> I know. We're, I feel like we're throwing it all at the very end. We're like, Ian, e- it's crazy. And what the hell else with that, Duke? And why was Gladys acting like that? <laughs>
3: That is all related. Everything you just I said. I know. I uh, know. Bridget, though, we're going back to Bridget, cause, and I'll connect us to the Russells because of my ingenious plan that Bridget would make an excellent ladies' maid and provide drama with Adelheid in the servants' quarters. Forget who said Jack or Miss Bauer mentioned. Well, perhaps Oscar will get married and move in and raise his family in the house. And she legit snorted and snarked, and she says, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, and walked away. What's up with Bridget outing Oscar all of a sudden? And we're laying that groundwork. I mean, we did know that we saw Oscar and John, and she walked in on them when he when John came to, yeah. uh, to sit bedside when Oscar was convalescing, and they asked specifically then, do you think she saw anything? Uh, and Oscar right. said, there's nothing to see. I mean, maybe she was commenting on Oscar just not being very marriable and not his sexuality, but it's felt like a, a snort and a comment on his sexuality to me
2: i'm just surprised that anybody is like willing to be so blase about right. it I, like, especially really, with, it with makes armstrong no sense yeah I mean, uh, it makes
3: no sense uh, to me you see armstrong going up to agnes and being like oh bridget was casting aspersions about all
2: yeah could you imagine that that would be instant death you No, know, because so. you
3: know she's looking to get back into agnes's good graces so mm-hmm. especially in a redundant workforce situation Well, because, I mean, it was specifically Bridget that Agnes said would replace Armstrong if she had to fire Armstrong for being nasty. Bridget was specifically named. I mean, she's Uh competition. She
2: who was specifically named. She who was specifically named.
3: (laughs) Don't even get me started on how the pure blood wizards and their ever shrinking pool of marriage material. That's why they couldn't stay pure blood in the Harry Potter series that they had to go outside and marry mixed blood. But that, that's its own thing talking about the royalty. Oh my God. Jeez Louise, Louise,
2: indeed. Too much.
3: Armstrong is a Voldemort type. That's very true though. He
2: totally is. All right. I think,
3: I think we're down to trouble. I think we're down to trouble in Alabama.
2: Wow. Okay. so last episode, I said I really think there's going to be some sort of incident that they are going to be a part of in some way. We had brought back the concept of remember the story of how Dorothy and Arthur met and there was white men who were chasing Dorothy and Arthur stepped in. And I had queried you. Do you think we're trying to set up some sort of pattern, some sort of cycle here of somehow there's going to be danger? T. Thomas is going to say or do something and somehow that's going to bring Peggy and T. Thomas together michael marie was i in the writing room or were the writers under my bed because i feel i struck gold with that one no what do you think
3: no yeah you were dead on you were dead on i mean i i i was uh, i was happy because we got the trouble that i felt like we needed to get out of alabama you you connected the dots great back to the the parents story which which is always a good narrative device uh, we 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 always talk about how you know daughters look for their fathers in in their mates and then sons look for their mothers in their mates and and here you have a version of of Dorothy and Arthur's story playing out in Alabama. Now it's a little bit different, though, right? Because the trouble ultimately was of T. Thomas's making. It, not that he was wrong to do what he did, but ha- does if he doesn't stand up and and say stop it, and then and then no. literally shove the man. I mean, that felt I'm, like trouble was going to be going. It looked like Mason Sturt and his yeah. goon were looking to do trouble wherever they can find it.
2: He looked right at T. Thomas. Like it, right. it, it He already and made his it. mark and in he that moment. Him when he said, "What yeah. are you staring
3: at? Nothing? Are you calling me nothing?" So he did, he, yeah.
2: It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered if he stood up and pushed. There, he would. There would have been enough. And and him like hurting B and and doing all that. I mean, that's that's the setup for the Dorothy and the Arthur. I mean, he was actively hurting B. I have to tell you, cinematically, they really telegraphed those guys coming through the door because there was a scene before they came in where the way that they had had blocked it it was like t thomas and peggy were way to the right of the screen and the door was taking up like three quarters of the screen and when that happened I was like oh crap white guys are going to come bursting through this door the camera switches back over to B and then bam through the door and I was like crap like I so saw that coming it was it was really great if you're like into that like anticipatory like oh my god they're showing us and now it's about to happen kind of feel because you could feel it coming I'm not going to say anything negative about what T Thomas did because I feel like your humanity would come burst through, right? I think he I mean,
3: acted the way we'd want anyone to act in that situation and the way that I hope I would act in that situation. Honestly. Yeah, I
2: mean, B was screaming out. I mean, that whole situation was was terrible. And now here's the thing. T. Thomas doesn't know who he's dealing with. Like, they had to explain to us that this guy was actually a county commissioner. He was actually somebody of importance. It was not just like he just wandered in.
3: And maybe the father of David, who we've gotten to know over these last
2: two episodes? Holy crap. You think the father of David?
3: his name is mason sturt that's why peggy goes and says sturt because david Uh-oh. the the man
2: oh man does that mean b was probably his former slave y-
3: yeah that's what that all was oh, about you, we i was known only each getting other-
2: some no, of that no, okay no, sorry no no, no i was only getting some he of that. was
3: in when doing i mean you have to i mean I got have, it I he's in you when doing left and right you know what i like make something yeah, taste no, no, all I got, of that i know I yeah, 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 but yeah.
2: that didn't necessarily mean the no, David no. They, and
3: we've but... known each other our whole life. No, he was definitely either mm, the son of the her owner or her owner directly. I'm gonna I go think with on son. Age, I think son also. So they probably they probably were of a same age. David goes by Sturt. So yeah. that young sweet man who I, he's the first quote because here's the thing with the scene and this is why the Alabama storyline was so arresting to me was it was such a mix of inspiration and hope especially on the day of the dedication and, and we're listening to David's quote here about what it meant to him to be a part of this building, but also what he hopes to do, specifically naming his mom's restaurant and helping it to then be, you know, at the end of it is Peggy and T. Thomas having to hide in a barn where men were literally with torches looking for them to kill them. It's, it, it's a, it's a whiplash moment, but we can't, and uh, human spirit wise, I don't want to skip over the hope because the hope is the only thing some of these people are going to have to rest on. And when they go to close their head, like Fanny and Booker T, when they go to sleep tonight, they're going to have to hope that no one burns down their house. Very real. B has to hope that no one burns down that restaurant. Like th- there's retribution to be paid for what these out of towners did hope is very important so let's listen to david this is the quote that he gives to peggy uh when they're at the dormitory dedication
4: oh david hello Uh, do you mind if i get a few quotes for the newspaper not at all not at all so how does it feel to be able to (laughs) attend class and live in a building you helped create with your own hands
3: it's very moving Just a technical matter. It doesn't really matter. But these dormitories, it actually wasn't called the Porter dormitory. It's actually called the Porter Hall. And the dormitories were actually only for girls in this hall. I get narratively why they, you know, did this and they wanted to make it inclusive. But David was actually not sleeping in this dormitory. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to it.
4: Oh, David, hello. Uh, Do you mind if I get a few quotes for the newspaper? Not at all. Not at all. So how
1: does
4: it to be able to attend class and live in a building you helped create with your own hands. Mm,
1: It's very moving. In fact, I didn't expect it to be so emotional. Getting weepy, David? (laughs) I'm proud to know that we really did that. Makes me feel like we could do
0: anything. And what do you plan to do with your Tuskegee Diploma? I'd like to have my own farm so I can support a family.
4: I met your girlfriend.
0: (laughs) I'd also like to use my farm to help out with our family business.
5: And what's that?
0: My mama started a restaurant. I plan on supplying them with the harvest from the crop on the land.
5: Well, I wish you
4: all the best.
1: Thank you. You should visit my mama's place. Oh, yes, we might take you up on that. But first, Mr. Washington wants to give us a tour. Of course. Thank you again, David. It was nice seeing y'all. Take care. I'll tell my mama to look out for you. Yes, sir.
3: The enthusiasm, I felt like we can do anything, especially when you combine that with Peggy sitting in with the ladies in the domestic economy class, talking about how energized and inspired they are of Peggy, telling her she should come teach a newspaper writing course and just wanting to work in a hotel so they don't have to watch white people's children. They're all filled with enthusiasm and hope and faith, and they can do anything. They feel like they can do anything. That is the success that Booker T. Washington and his wife, fanny have created here I, I know this had to hit your heart because it, it hit mine and my heart is not nearly as big as yours when all this is happening after watching the peggy with the ladies sewing and then listening to his david quote are you feeling like we're getting out of alabama at this part with only good stuff happening because it feels like it's wrapping up at this part
2: oh did i think we were going to get out no i know i never thought we were going to get out without an incident they're I, just I they're just layering on stuff. more yeah. good
3: things. We had a whole episode last yeah. week of good things in Alabama, and here we're starting again, full of hope and ambition. I, is this a good example of hope is dangerous? The, the that there's important. It's important to feel like you could do anything, but there is a double edged sword to such unlimited hope and feeling like you could do anything.
2: Oh, I mean, I hate uh, you know, I hate to even think that. <clears throat> Hope is dangerous in the sense of, like, limited control of circumstances. And so it it really just can be very, very difficult. That is not something that I actually, in my own regular life, put into practice. I mean, I put a lot of hope into a lot of situations, for good or for bad. But definitely within TV and within stories, I mean, as soon as you have a character who's hope, 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 hoping that vulnerability that that it creates really feels ripe for some villain to come in and snatch it away so in stories it's really really difficult for me to to have somebody all of a sudden be like this really wistful hopeful because <laughs> i can just feel someone coming up behind them to ruin it for them but i don't want to think it's true in real life i want to think we're allowed to, to, you know, to want more and to, and to hope that things will work out and to pray for miracles and that kind of stuff. I, I'm that girl. I am that girl. I'm the one that you would call to ask me, please, please, hope hope for you that something will go well. But I just think that Peggy was just too naive about everything that was going on in the South. And the more good things that were being layered on, the more I felt the villain creeping in
3: you could see her literally floating above the ground she is so happy yeah. and enthused coming out of the, her meeting with the ladies and 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 we heard in the last episode fanny tells her those girls are in awe of you and then she actually got to experience it it was almost it was almost too much for her and then talking to david that the, neither they couldn't smile any bigger the two of them and even david's friend coming over to, to bust his chops about being emotional couldn't dampen the the Spirit, they're over brimming with joy and 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 such good feelings that you knew it had to come crashing down. Uh, all right, I'm going to play a clip here. It's a long clip because I edited down and the entire back end, the entire what I'm calling trouble section. I, I edited it a bit, but it's still a long clip. Let's it'll take us through the entire journey for our final part of the discussion.
1: So, have you enjoyed yourself on our trip? Mm?
5: More than that. Huh? been
4: inspired especially by the female students they have such ambition despite their circumstances they're fearless and so are you am I (laughs) well I like that you think that but there is so much more I want to do my lack of courage keeps getting in the way
1: well I certainly believe you can accomplish everything you want what are you looking at nothing you calling me
5: nothing? Mr. Mason, don't start. Let me fix you up some chicken to take home.
1: Stop it! What would you say? No. Let her go. Don't get smart with me. Do you know who I am? They're from out of town. Shut your mouth. You best sit down, boy. This here's Mason Stark. He's the county commissioner. Stark? I'm going to have to teach you a lesson so you understand your place. Our man will take you to where you can shelter, and tomorrow morning, we'll take you to the first train. I'm so sorry to put you in this position. We don't have time for apologies. You need to get on out of here. They've gone. We're safe.
4: I won't feel safe until I'm back in the city. My mother warned me,
5: but I never could have imagined this.
1: This is my fault. I grew up with these people. I should have protected you and held my tongue.
4: But that's not who you are.
1: And that's not who you are either. That's why I hired you. (laughs) (laughs) Will things
3: ever really change? A lot to unpack there. I, I, I. You're talking about telegraphing the moment. It's literally, they, I there's an edit point, but he says, and you can be anything you want to be. And then the, that's when the door slams open and you heard a little bit of of the edit clip and those guys come in and then you, you have to listen for it and even watch it. I missed it the first time I saw it. The way Peggy whispers no to him, it's just, it's, I don't even know if he heard it. She says it's so low, but it's the first time Peggy's ever been afraid in this situation. I mean, the last time we saw her in New York, she was literally going nose to nose with with Armstrong, a white woman, not exhibiting any fear for the danger she may cause her in her livelihood. These guys haven't even done anything yet. Not really. And even she gets, no, please, please, please yeah. don't stand up. She gets it. She feels it. She feels it literally in her bones. Um, I I was curious about what your thoughts were on Booker T's reaction here no time for apologies you need to get gone
2: he needs to protect everything that he has worked so hard to build and you know to have these guests be connected to him in some way connected to the school in some way can only mean bad things for all that that Booker T has worked for so I completely understand and then just the 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 actual practicality of they cannot find you. I mean, if they find you, they, you are dead. So you have to get out of here. Like, we don't have time to talk about this in any way. Even when Peggy said, like, I have a couple more things in my room. I was like, girl, leave them. Get yeah. out of there. I don't care I I what team. dress is yeah. up there. Get out. Yeah, my, I mean, wife, my, my
3: wife and my life is not worth your extra stuff. Get in the car and Everything. go.
2: My life, my wife, my home, my school, my business, all the other people who live on premises now all of those people could have been in massive danger had they been found on Booker T's property so this entire part though i've got to tell you when they get like the the mob going on and they run to that barn and they're hiding i actually thought this was another moment where it, they cut it too short for me. And I know that sounds bad. Like, how long do I want to sit in that suffering? It's not that I want to, but I don't want audiences to take it too lightly. Like, oh, see, they like they just walked right by and nothing happened to them. I knew it was going to be a near miss. I predicted a near miss. I didn't think anyone was going to actually get hurt more than, you know, maybe maybe a fist fight, but not anything more than that. But maybe come but in the barn, really though. Come
3: closer. When that horse whinnied. That
2: whole thing, I the- almost...
3: I was dying. When that horse whinnied, I thought for sure that was going to draw them to the barn at least bring it closer and but again, they're running out of time. This is late in the episode when we're even covering this. Oh, man, let it breathe though. I, I I again, I don't remember if we said this because you and I talked a bunch about this before we actually started recording. But as difficult as this was and as violent as this was and as troubling as this was, I needed more of it. I need to know and feel the terror. Like, hammer it home for me. I don't know this experience. So, and I and I got a good taste of it and I definitely felt it. And there's parts here that that will stay with me. But also it did feel like it went too quick those guys and, and like, weren't actively searching easy. Yeah, like it was almost just... too
2: easy for them to get away it just i don't know the problem is that i think it undercuts the actual danger because it was like look they just kind of walked by you know like they weren't they weren't really like so like crazed and everything but they were and it should have been shown more like that now we have to pause for a moment what about the kiss what
3: what's your take on the kiss i have i, I uh, you know uh...
2: I understand Being in a very heated, very scary, very dangerous situation, having that adrenaline clinging on to somebody else. I get it. I I understand. I've been in car accidents. I've been in a lot of different situations where you have that adrenaline rush and you're not thinking and you're being maybe impulsive, right? An embrace, a hard embrace. Cool. Completely cool. Even a loving embrace, right? Even breaking probably what Mrs. T. Thomas would think was was an acceptable embrace. But kissing... I felt like, guys, what, what is happening?
3: Oh, see that felt that felt inevitable to me, and and it oh, well, felt it right. Did
2: but in that moment, I mean, th- them getting together or them having a kiss at some point made sense. But did you, it, really, practically speaking, would you kiss the woman that you were with in that situation?
3: Yes, but. Shared trauma, shared experience, especially of this kind, it brings people together. There's already an attraction there. It's all you need. He was sizing her up when he was making the loosen your belts jokes before those guys came in. This was already moving that way. Then the adrenaline and fear of this event literally think, pushed them over the edge. I think there's a good chance they kiss even briefly without this interruption tonight. Everything T. Thomas did in these Alabama scenes since, if not the dinner with Booker and Fanny then certainly when she's milking the cow is him staring at her with like a like a smile on his face he's been doing nothing but getting more and more attracted to her and, and letting himself feel it more and more this entire time but you needed more, but you needed more space for it to develop
2: I did, I, like we needed to spend a little time with them in that barn, with them like baring their souls a little bit and, and actually kind of coming clean a little bit with each other about how they feel or about whatever like I needed a little bit of something else I really get the stress of the situation I, act- I actually know people who got married because they were coming home from their very first date and it was one of those situations where they came up to the door and two men came up behind them pushed them in robbed the house took their everything and while they were laying on the floor in horror after the guys leave I, the man proposed he was like we nothing worse could ever happen to us than what this just what all this was like i, I if we made it through this we can make it through anything That's so i get it i get like trauma equaling some big you know love moment but i just needed a little bit more like
3: yeah. no i agree with you I, I need a more on all of this because because they talk about important things in this scene that presuming when the next week's episode picks up, there it's daylight and they're on a train out of town because everything's a little bit less scary once daylight comes. We're not going to get to circle back to, but it's important. It's important for him to talk about how he should have known better having been raised around but couldn't stop himself. The question of, but that's not who you are is huge. That is an existential question that we all need to ask all the time. It's as important as as Marion telling Ada you can't live waiting for someone else's approval. You have to live your life because that approval may never come. You have to be who you are. Is is a super important concept that I think we all need to wrestle with and and if you have a show that can show us that in a ma- in a moment of being who you are leads to potentially disastrous consequences. Well, that's an important discussion to have. The scene ending on her saying, will things really ever change? That's a loaded question. Does she mean in the South? Does she mean anywhere between the races? Does she mean between her and T. Thomas on a personal level? There's a lot of conversation there that should have all been fleshed out more, that I want to be more fleshed out.
2: I'm just very hopeful that at least maybe we we do. This is episode five. This isn't eight. If this was eight, I would be like throwing myself back because if if we weren 't sure we were getting a season three if we weren 't if we don 't know you know that we have more time with these characters, I could not handle this at least we have more time with these characters, so at least I know that there 's a chance that we could sort of you know sort this through a little bit i The problem is that it changes who t thomas is as a character completely he is a married man who speaks very matter of factly and and frankly feels he is righteous in everything he says he and does which is cool and he talks to Peggy that way. okay we we really held him up as a man with a lot of morals and ethics and he had like he has all these reasons for everything. Cool. What the hell then? What is this? What did you do to your wife? What did you do to your marriage what you guys lost a baby together? like what are you doing and Peggy is very young and and is your employee and in any in any twenty twenty three conversation, we have to say that imbalance of power is enough to say that was inappropriate anyway,
3: uh, yeah, a hundred percent plus clearly. The age differential. She's looking at him with the same kind of awestruck face as all of those students were looking at her. It's his responsibility to see that.
2: I feel like I need to watch again and see who kisses who and exactly how. Who oh, I, leans think he, what I, I, I think I think I gotta watch that a couple more times. To my be honest.
3: instinct is he's the one who who moves more than she does because she seems very percent. seems very unsure. I mean, I would watch it again and maybe I'm wrong, but that might. The vibe was that that only happens because he lets it happen. Which which then, my qu- my next question for you is: Does it help you in what you think of him now that he looks so disappointed in himself when he pulls away and sits back? He looks really pretty disgusted with himself in the dim does it light. Help
2: me. Well, does know. it? I mean,
3: people make mistakes in the moment. If he feels horrible about it afterwards, it doesn't make it better. But does it? It has to help mitigate it. He's not like going for taking her clothes off. He's he's sitting back and reflecting, and I think looking shameful about it. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading into it.
2: I personally need a little more time with this. I can't quite. Figure out how comfortable I am with C. Thomas's actions. I don't know that this was an accident. Like, because everything you said prior to that right. was, he was that building he, towards was, it. he was. Yeah, yeah, and that he had been grooming this evening to go yeah, somewhere. That's a good word I, for it, which is I would important even word. wonder if even before that, with the sh- coming to the door with no shirt on and stuff like that, I mean, you could probably back it up and say, I don't know. I mean, there were kind of little steps taken here and well, there that, that were at least making them more familiar with each other, okay? And stepping over some boundary lines.
3: He let them go on the trip together without a third party at Chaperone. I, I don't think having an right. escort or some uh, third party is uncalled for in this situation in this day and age. Not in Mm talking necessarily 2023, but a married man and a younger woman who who no one knows their relation, who are of color going into the Deep South. having, uh, Having an escort doesn't seem crazy to me. Mistake one was made there.
2: And it was an informed choice, I feel he made. And so in that case, I don't know. I don't want to think anything bad about him because I like him as a character and I think what he's doing is important and he's bringing up important questions and all that stuff. But... I really need to see what happens between him and Peggy next.
3: Yes, we definitely need to see that. I really don't. I think we we literally stopped in the middle of the chapter with them. Yeah, it's it's like we stopped
2: mid-kiss and you're like, well, what do you think? And I'm like, well, a lot matters. What happens after the kiss and what happens when they go home? The lot happens. Really, that's really what matters. I mean, this was like clicking off the first domino but the curiosity is well where will all the chips fall now what what's happening is he divorcing his wife is he taking up with peggy are they going to have some sort of illicit affair like what is the plan here people
3: I, I and you know the my impulse is to let's let's play the list of what if games like the mitigating factors are mitigating factors so if it turns out then him and his wife have slept apart for or lived apart for years ever since the they lost their baby and they have no marriage to speak of other than on paper Does that make it less offensive? Well, maybe, but he is still her employer and he is still taking advantage of the situation because of the power dynamic, which maybe isn't a concern in 1883. But 2023, eyes are definitely going to see it that way. I don't know. You're right. It's, It's a little it's a little unnecessary or futile to go through the exercise because we need to see what happens next. This jeopardizes everything she's working for. She, like Marion, isn't necessarily looking for a husband. They're looking for professional satisfaction they're looking to make a difference on their own two feet so if she can't work at the globe anymore because she has now had a a kiss with the boss who maybe can't deal with her being in his employ anymore well where does that leave her the reason she's at the globe is because she couldn't get published on her own because they wanted to make her characters white
2: see okay now that would be absolutely unacceptable to me if 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 he gets himself so embarrassed or so whatever humiliated that he did this that he can't be around her and somehow she loses her job because of this entire situation oh my god we 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 all take to the streets because i'm pissed then if that's what goes down like this comes back to the how responsible are you when someone else hits on you This is George. How responsible are you when Turner comes in naked to your bed? How responsible are you if you're Peggy who's shaking in fear and your boss kisses you? I mean, how responsible is Peggy? What did she do to ask for that or be in that situation? Nothing. She had to run to the barn because of things that T. Thomas did. Like... She didn't ask to be in this spot. So it's same like George. He didn't ask to be in that spot. But it's like, what do you do next is the most important thing. How do you respond to what's happening? And both of them better have really good responses in order for this to be okay. And I swear to God, if she has any negative, if he treats her differently because he did this or anything, oh, I'm going to be really livid at him.
3: I agree. That's how I feel. There's nothing, (laughs) nothing more to say. I mean, I think you, you, I think you've got the the lay of the land pretty dead on. So, it, it, you know, like so many other things, like George and Pittsburgh and Larry and what comes next and Marion and like we're we're very in the middle of the chapter now. This is episode five. This is kicking off the second half of the season. This is the beginning of the end of the season. Everything builds to probably episode seven with the episode eight. You know, I love a penultimate episode. There's a lot of moving parts here for the next three hours. I don't even want to put you in a position of having to take a guess at what may happen. I wasn't expecting the Brooklyn Bridge to come in this, to this episode, so I'm officially out of the guessing game.
2: Nah, I'm, I'm out of guesses too. I mean, we... For what you said about having like the second and third episodes really set us up for four and five, that's all true. But a lot of our, a lot of that setup now is used up. Like we're no longer preparing for the Duke and we're no longer heading to Alabama and we're no longer in Alabama. Like a lot of the stuff that we were doing is sort of finished up now. So I think we've got to turn attention to George. We know that union stuff is, is coming. And of course, the Met, we've, we're going to get back to that and back to just New York City politics, get out of Newport again. All of that has to happen because it doesn't like we're done, I think, with a lot of the stories that actually got set up at the beginning. Like, Larry and Mrs. Blaine, like, closed. You know, like, the Peggy and T. Thomas trip closed. Really, Bertha preparing for the Duke and the Duke meeting Gladys and all that. That's closed. Like, we did it. Lots. And even Winterton's, like, uh, petty nonsense with the Russells. like Ada and the
3: Rev married.
2: Ada and the Rev got married. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stories, like, closed out. And, and Agnes and her behavior with them like that closed out, too. So lots, lots, lots closed out.
3: These two episodes together work as a really long mid-season finale, maybe. I think and, you're right, yeah, setting and true. setting and setting us up for the next three, like I said it last week, so i'm 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 loath to say it again, but probably nothing new uh or nothing new being introduced now cleaning up what's already been introduced and remains unsettled.
2: I like that very much. You guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know that we are really boggled sometimes. <laughs> like what some of these characters do. And I'm so glad we get a chance to like talk it out. I don't know what I do, Mike. If we, if I just had to watch the show and then just like go to bed and never talk about it with anyone, I would be very distraught. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I know, I know. Some people are like three <laughs> hours every single week, but guy, like, the, oh, the, I
2: don't think so. There, there's, there's
3: a lot to talk about here, and but I think the show asks a lot of good questions about how we live our own lives. That's certainly something that I, I, I have found myself talking about more and more the last few episodes. You know, questions being raised, even just with Peggy, and and and, you know, who are you? Being who you are, damn the consequences like that's a real life question that we all have to ask at some point. So I really am enjoying the show because I think it's just so relatable. These are really relatable characters to real things that real people go through
2: thanks you guys again for listening and come back for ne- for our next episode it'll be right around the corner we can't wait this is caroline
3: and this is mike thank you for listening to new money old rules the gilded age podcast if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcast and while you're there rate review and subscribe make sure you subscribe hit that bell subscribe so you never miss another episode it'll be right there in your feed and while you're at spotify and while you're at apple please leave us five stars and at apple leave us a nice review if you do we're going to read it on air and we're going to thank you because we appreciate every single one of you who listens and when you leave us a five-star review it helps other people find the show we have a little community going here and we have three more hours to talk about and hopefully we get a renewal for season three
2: gosh we have to put that out there in the universe season three for real Didi.
3: manifesting season <laughs> three
2: thanks so much for listening
3: thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production